Look out, Van Halen. Here comes Motley Crue. The band recently showcased their act at the Roxy Theater in Los Angeles, and the crowd loved them. MTV Music Television was at the scene to talk with the Glitter Group. You're not teeny bopper by no means yeah. on stage. Yeah. I mean, just the pretty look, or whatever you want to call it, it's just happened. It wasn't really planned. And that sometimes may be a little bit against us, but the music kind of speaks for itself. Motley Crue predicts that they're rock and roll's new fashion trendsetters. It's already <laughs> started here. <laughs> In LA, it's happening. There's people walking around everywhere with the same haircuts, the same look. Let's see that at our show tonight. Take a look. Yeah, they all show up at the shows with the hair and the. I mean, anything different's gonna catch on, right? A few people cut off their hair like sex pistols and rebelled against that, and look at it caught on. From Los Angeles with Motley Crue, this is Tony Kilbert for MTV Music Television. Was that part of your biz? <laughs> Don't you remember what happened? Perry came in and we were rehearsing and he looked around and he goes, this is certainly a motley looking crew. So, yeah. Did you ever realize that the original name of Whitehorse was Motley Crew? After, let me, I think you told me. Yeah. Yeah. That was our first name. It was Fat City, Motley Crew, Whitehorse. Vince is the ultimate singer. When I first met Vince, I was completely amazed with him. He's, uh, he's everything a singer should be. He's got the attitude, the looks, the moves. He's, he always gets the lady, you know? He's got, he's got it down. What's great is uh, it's not like he tries. He, he is what, what you see. What's your most terrifying experience? Well, check this. This is one time I had to fucking piss so fucking bad. I was driving my Corvette with my buddy, Spidey, my drum roadie. Going down the freeway, I had to piss. piss. You know when you're going, ow, 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 ow. So I pull over to the side of the freeway. I forget to put the car in park. I jump out of the car so fast that it's still in drive. My fucking car, my Corvette, runs over me. My own car ran over me. I call my car pristine now after that incident. Isn't that cool? I was working in this liquor store, and Mick came in and asked me, you know, if I was a musician or whatever. I said, yeah. And uh, I said I was like into Aerosmith and uh, Ted Nugent, uh, you know, Kiss, stuff like that. And it was happening back in like 1979, 78. And Mick, Mick was into like Bebop Deluxe, a uh, bunch of weird jazz, Jeff Beck. So instantly we didn't get along. 
instantly. And I think he left the store, told me to fuck off or something, you know. I swear to God, and that's how we met. And then that night, he, well, he goes, well, if you want to see a real guitar player, come down and see me and play in this place called The Stone Pony. And he was in a band called Spiders and Cowboys. And I went in there, and he was just ripping on the guitar, doing a slide guitar solo with the mic stand and everything. Blew me away. So in 1981, put Motley Crue together. Mick comes in, and uh, you know his auditions for the band. You know, we're playing together. Forgot it must have been a month. And one day, I just like kind of, I went, "Are you that guy?" And he goes, "I thought you were that guy." And we hated each other. We met, but now we're like best friends. Tommy and Nicky met each other through a, a friend of theirs that they had both together, and they found me through an ad in the paper. Loud, rude, and aggressive guitar player, me. I noticed you live down here by the beach. Yeah. What's your favorite fish? The elusive fish in the pantyhose that no one can seem to find. Yeah, I think it cost us, what, three grand to make, and we did it in just a couple days. I mean, it was basically just a, a glorified demo tape. Too Fast for Love um, was our first time um, we were in a full-blown, like, real recording studio. I guess my fondest and clearest memories of that time is that we were fucking green. Nobody knew what they were doing, which is, I think is the beauty of that record. It's why it sounds like the, the way it is. Everyone's just, we got in there, we're like, whoa, microphones, tape machines, you know, let's do this. We were just like, okay, one, two, three, four, go. Like, nobody really thought much about anything. Nobody overthought anything. Everybody just played. I gotta have more cowbell. And you will. <laughs> yeah, we just should have a disclaimer here because, you know, before we start this episode, as you guys may have guessed, this episode is about Motley Crue. And, you know, we just have to warn you, this episode is going to feature excessive cowbell. I a mean, lot. there's... <laughs> and so if you're sensitive to cowbell, you might want to skip this one. Yeah. Because there's a lot. This is a trigger warning. If, if Cowboy right. is your trigger, this episode is 17 and it's entitled Too Fast for Love. And as Slip said, this is about Motley Crue's first album, Too Fast for Love. Welcome to the Cultural Futures Exchange. Uh, we introduced ourselves already. I'm Jeff and that is Slip over there. Hey. hey. And uh, this is the place where we examine different pieces of cultural ephemera, music, movies, TV, stage. Even in our last uh, uh, published episode uh, here, which just has gone live uh, around um, the uh, Berlin versus missing persons, I was talking about a stage stuff, and we do it all, and we dive into the context and time that they came out, what's happened since, our take on future valuation of this item in terms of if you should go long, buy it, uh, the value will go up, of course, uh, go short, sell it, the value will go down or, or neutral, stay about the same. Uh, in a kind of fake stock market sort of way. Not that complicated of a concept, as you will see. So welcome to this episode. We're excited to bring it to you. Uh, we think it'll be a lot of fun. So Slip, what do you have to say before we get kicked off here? Nothing. Just uh, I think this is one of when we first started this podcast, this is right on my mind uh, doing this record. And I'm so glad that you agree that this is the one to do. Uh, because you could easily do a couple of others, you know, there, you could do a lot of different stuff on Motley Crue. And obviously there's the whole dirt and the whole kind of thing that Motley Crue embodies, which has so little to do with music and has so much to do with celebrity. 
but I kind of like that we're taking it back to the the music with the first album, which is so unique. And, you know, I think, you know, we'll see, we'll see how it stands the test of time and, and why, you know, we'll, we'll kind of go over why we chose this one uh, in our, you know, assessment uh, after this. So yep. why don't we jump into the personal histories and let's hear how you got into this album and this band. Yeah. You know, it, one of the things that, occurs to me too when we talk a lot about these bands and we talk about LA or bands that were in LA maybe from other places and Slip and I both grew up in the greater Southern California Los Angeles extended Los Angeles Orange County area and so we may have different perspectives on these things or have heard about these bands and stuff just because it was sort of the the nexus of a lot of these things and realize that other places and other people may not heard of these things as soon as we have and all that so it is what it is so it's not like yeah, we were I on think, the pulse of anything. We just happened to right, be co-located. Right. I think that's something important. You know, it's funny. I just got into an argument about Stranger Things the other night with somebody because I noticed in one of the seasons, the second season, one of the characters has a poster of Kill 'Em All by Metallica. Yeah. And and this is that kind of millennial thing of like, well, the internet, you can know about things right away. But there's no way this kid in Indiana would have had a poster of Kill 'Em All the year after it was released, there probably weren't even posters yet. I mean, that was no. a really underground album, but whereas a kid in LA would know about it because, or maybe California or, or the Bay area, because again, things were more localized then. Right. So, That's right. You, you know, the same with Motley Crue, right. We may have known about this early on, whereas a lot of people found out about it once it hit MTV and what's, although my, my first exposure was MTV, which we'll get into, but, but you know, the, the LA, the reputation for them was around us because things were, weren't like they are now where you could just find out about anything instantly. Right. It had to percolate and grow from the underground until it was distributed by a mainstream label. So I think that's one. And I got into this argument because the person thought I was insulting people from Indiana. And it's like, no, I'm not saying people in, in Indiana weren't cool. You know, it didn't, you know, I'm just saying it was very unlikely they would have had a poster because it probably didn't exist and they wouldn't have heard about the band yet because they didn't blow up until maybe the second or third album. So it's right. like, it was, it was much more of a local phenomenon back then. And there were scenes, whereas now it's like, there's still scenes, but they usually get known right away because they blow up on Spotify or stream, you know, YouTube. So that's it's a whole right. different world. Right. And yeah, I think that's what you're getting at. It, that's yeah. exactly right. And yeah, I first heard about Motley Crue very early on I think I was oh, relatively early on, you know, they formed around 1981. I did not hear about them that early. I did hear about them probably when I was in uh, seventh grade, I think. I was about, I was 12. I, I was a year younger than most of the people in my grade. And so um, I did hear about them. There was this kid in my uh, junior high uh, class who was kind of a cool kid had long hair, you know, was kind of a rocker kid. I think he had an older brother or brothers who he was, you know, tailing around after. And he had an early Motley Crue shirt, like that famous early black and white Motley Crue shirt you can find online, probably sells for a lot of money. He had that, he wore it. And he had cl he claimed that he had seen them at, you know, the Starwood or the Whiskey or one of those places. I doubt that. I mean, he was probably 13 at the time, maybe. And yeah, so, he wouldn't have been old enough to get into that. Probably show. not. Yeah. I didn't unless, no he, unless he was a really mature 13 year old with the fuzz stash, you know, maybe he got in, but I don't think he so. probably was more so than me, but there's no way I, no one believed him, by the way, he claimed that he did. 
none of none of you know our friends believed that he did, but he did have the shirt for sure, and he was in the Motley Crew, and he was in the Too Fast for Love, undeniably. And when he was talking about that, and he he would play it for us, he'd go like, "Well, this is kind of weird," and it was it was kind of a glam rock thing that I wasn't really exposed to. You know, some of the early influences that we'll talk about for Motley Crue were not really bands that I listened to or knew about. You know, the New York Dolls or anything like that. Like I had no idea who they were. I mean, I might have known David Bowie a little bit later for like China Girl and those sort of era stuff. I was not a Bowie fan. I didn't know much about Bowie at the time. Maybe some Ziggy Stardust stuff, but like not really even. So they were new. They were different to me. It was kind of interesting. I liked it. I thought it was simultaneously cool and really silly at the same time, which I still think that's the case. So we'll we'll get into that and talk about it. But that's the first time I heard them. And it's seemingly not too long after that. I don't know the exact time gap. Shout at the Devil came out. And that started getting played on MTV, which I actually didn't have at the time, but I had friends who had it. And I remember seeing the Looks That Kill video and the Too Young to Fall in Love video. And I thought they were just insane videos. Like, And I was mesmerized by them. And both of those songs are great songs. And I was started really getting into Motley Crue. Like, okay, this is really good. I did not distinguish at the time that they had completely changed their look from the Too Fast for Love era kind of glam punk thing to like a metal leather thing like that wasn't really on my radar, even though in retrospect, it looks pretty obvious. And in interviews, they make a big deal about that and talk about that. But I I wasn't really into the look of the bands too much. It didn't really make that much of an impression. But the other bands that were around L.A. at that time, I was also really into. Like, you may remember Rat, and I'm sure we'll talk about them in a future episode. They were huge in L.A. too. And when that album, their first album, Out of the Cellar, came out, that was actually even bigger around at least L.A. than the Motley Crue stuff with Round and Round and Back for More and those sorts of bands. And and so that L.A. scene was um, really kind of kicking up a lot of dust. And if you read and hear a lot of the Motley Crue interviews, the whole Sunset Strip scene, um, in the dirt, they actually talk about, if I recall, like kids coming over from the valley into Hollywood um, to be part of that scene that Motley Crue is right. in. And that was definitely happening, not so much with me and my friends. Obviously, we were a little too young, but older siblings and cousins and the usual story there were definitely part of that. And I remember, I forgot this guy's name. But he had an older sister who was in high school. And she was like older by like, I want to say like five or six years. So she was already almost out of high school at that point, it seemed like. And she was definitely one of those teased up metal chicks with the hair and all that. And she had the look and the leather pants. And she was always over there talking about that. I'm sure she was maybe an early conquest of the crew, uh, is my guess. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. Yeah, there were many. Yeah, exactly. It's It's not an exclusive club. But uh, at any rate, that's kind of the story there. Um, I remember uh, a lot of my friends were into Shout at the Devil, that whole era. And then as junior high and into high school, when Theater of Pain came out, there's a schism. And I remember some of my friends who were really into metal and hard rock stuff, into the Metallica, you know, uh, Ride the Lightning. Oh, my God. I remember listening to that album ad nauseum. You know, when that came out, I think around the same time as Shout at the Devil, I want to say roughly right around that. It's later, actually. It, so Shout was 83. 84, 85, something like that. Because I thought it was Master like 80, was 85. And Master is 86. Okay. Yeah, so so Kill Em All was 83. Okay. But um, but yeah, uh, Ride 
Yeah, I hate that we don't know this, but it's either 84 or 85. So it was yeah. later. So so yeah, the, the shout was eight, late 83. So you would have been listening to to ride uh probably right after that. After that. Yeah. yeah. It was after that. But before before Theater of Pain, but after that, yeah. I just remember uh let's see, the maiden albums and especially uh Peace of Mind, and then when Power Slave came out for sure. And obviously, um, you know, you know uh, Number of the Beast and all the prior ones. Um, and uh, Ride the Lightning just being on never-ending loop. Like, that that was what we were listening to. And, and Motley Crue was in there, and Rat was in there. Rat's second album has a few high points, that kind of stuff. But the when Theater of Pain came out, every pretty much every one of my, like, hard rock friends was like, what the fuck is this shit? Like this is this complete garbage. It's it, it's just like it's like the soft rock kind of like almost uh, air supply or or Ario Speedwagon or I I don't know what they thought it was. But this is complete shit. And then you know MTV with Home Sweet Home and Smoking in the Boys Room, but especially Home Sweet Home, um, that was just never off of MTV. Um, it, it it was like one of the most popular videos I think in the history of MTV, and we could talk about that a little bit in a minute. Um, but I did not jump off that bandwagon and I'm not sure why. And to be honest, when I listen to theater of pain today, and I have listened to it recently and a few times over the years, it is one of the worst albums ever. Just empirically. <laughs> it is a complete piece of shit album. Um, the, the album cuts are, you might probably took about 10 seconds to write. Um, there's no thought that went into them. They're all instantly forgettable. The, the lyrics are dumber than dumb. Um, the, the, I mean, it, it's really just a completely, really ridiculously horrible album. And I listened to it a lot in high school, and I still don't know why. And what's weird about it is I can, like, empirically, obviously say that I know it is a horrible album. I do. It is like songs like Fight for Your Rights and Keep Your Eye on the Money are about the worst pieces of shit you could possibly imagine. Yeah, I think the thing with Fight for Your Rights is I was listening to this album, too, because I was never that familiar with this album, as I'll go into in my when I do my personal history with the with the band. But I was kind of like listening to a lot of these albums and saying, you know, how how do they stack up? You know, I've obviously loved Too Fast for Love and you know, we'll also be talking about Shout at the Devil quite a bit, which is also great. And I was kind of trying to see how they stack up together. And I will say as a song, as musically, Fight for Your Right isn't the worst song, but lyrically, it goes to a place where we shouldn't be, you know, Motley Crue shouldn't be going. You know, they're trying to sing about racism and Martin Luther King. And it's just out like we all can become one race, like these weird lyrics that are just like the dumbest thing ever. And it just ruins whatever could have been there. But yeah, most of the album cuts on that record are so boring and generic. They're, you know, they're just not catchy at all. I mean, it goes to show that the first single was a cover. That's the that's where the band was at this time. You know, they right. just were so zonked out on drugs and alcohol. Uh, they didn't really have anything in them. And you don't get a lot of the great, like you mentioned, too, you know, Too Young to Fall in Love and Looks That Kill. I mean, these are great fucking songs. You know, any way you stack it, they're memorable. You know, they're great. They rock. and you know, by the time of theater of pain, there's nothing that stands out like that. I mean, we could talk about the merits of home sweet home. I have my own opinion on that. Um, but um, arguably that's the one song that really rises above the rest of it, at least in terms of impact, but the rest of it, 
you know, yeah, it's mostly just really boring and and like you said, thrown together, no thought put into it. And what thought was put into it was misguided, yeah. right? So, yeah. Or the kind of thought limited by the very limited sort of experience and intelligence of the Motley Crue yeah, members. exactly. <laughs> like, you guys, you know, they're not, yeah, I don't think we need racial commentary from the likes of, you know, these guys. Yeah, exactly. Um, the, the, these are not, you know, uh, scholars and intellectuals. No. Idiots and morons. Right. Um, Anyway, the MTV played Home Sweet Home, you know, talking about that relentlessly. Like I said, it's one of the biggest videos ever. And I do think in a way it's compelling. And I've thought about this. And one of the reasons it is compelling, I think, is because it captures something essential about what Motley Crue was and what was interesting about them as sort of rock stars, performers, the charisma that they had. And obviously, this video is an iconic video. People know it. It was parodied to great effect in Hot Tub Time Machine. Very funny. Um, if you've never seen that, the end of that movie, there's a great parody of Home Sweet Home. That the oh, wow. Yeah, I does. saw it. I don't remember it much, Oh, you got to go watch yeah. it. It's great. It's great. Cool. It's really fucking funny. Anyway, I still like Theater of Pain, and I can't understand why. It's maybe nostalgia for me, but here's the deal. When that album was out and really popular and I was listening a lot to it, it wasn't really a great time in my life. Like, I fucking hated high school. I pretty much hated everything about it. And most of the people I went to high school with, like, it was not a great time for me. And I listened to that album a lot. And so it's nostalgia for a horrible time. It's a horrible album that gives me nostalgia for a horrible time in my life. And I somehow like that. Like, what the hell is wrong with me? I don't even understand why I like it. But I still kind of do. And just acknowledging the simple fact that it's really just a pile of poo, for sure. Um, When Girls, Girls, Girls was about to drop, I remember being so into Motley Crue as like a concept. And maybe this is where they're kind of eclipsing their music, which, you know, at that time was really easy to do with their image as rock stars as kind of, um, you know, celebrities, as sort of, you know, partiers extraordinaire. Right. And they were started to get into this whole, and, and obviously the whole girls, girls, girls motif was about this, was like a stripper shtick that they were into. I, and it was for real. I mean, they talk about how they spent every free moment at strip clubs, um, which, again, tells you about uh, the variety and depth of their intellectual endeavors and interests. Um, but... Somehow that was influential on me in the worst possible way, I guess. <laughs> Dude, yeah, it's a bad influence. It's a bad influence. And, uh, you know, in high school, my friend Craig and I, we kind of, our high school is kind of in a really seedy area of town. And there were some strip clubs around there. And some of the strip clubs were like uh, 18 and over strip clubs. And we went, we decided that we were going to like on a lunch break, like when we, I don't know, I think when we were seniors, you could go off campus for lunch or whatever that was that we were going to go over to the strip club and go in there. But we weren't, Oh, I wasn't 18 um, at all. I think when I was a senior, I was 16 years old or barely 17. So like uh, um, we went to um, this this travel agency where you could buy IDs and we wow. got these fake IDs that said that we were 18. Like, they weren't going to give us ones that said that the, the travel agency didn't care. They weren't real right. official government IDs. They didn't give a shit. They're like, here, $20, we'll take your picture and say whatever you want. So we went to this one strip club, 
that was kind of near us. It was open on like a Tuesday for lunch. Sorry, we should we should mention something, Jeff, because I think you just said travel agency. Yeah. So what a travel agency was. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, this is something that the internet has destroyed, right? Expedia and all these. There used to be these businesses where you'd have a travel agent and they would book all your rentals and That's all that. Right. It's kind of like what Expedia does now. We should mention this. We just throw this yes, out. Like, children. A travel agency, like people, younger listeners are like, what the hell is that? You know? So Back I thought in I would the day, just mention children, that. When there were, <laughs> right, before right. there were talkies. There yeah. were travel agencies where, yes, people would do all the things that Slip said. And yeah, I didn't know they gave some kind of IDs. That's they weird. Did. I don't think I ever went into a travel agency in my life because by the time I was old enough, I may have booked, actually, we may have booked the tickets early on when I got married and stuff. We might have gone through a travel agency. Uh, but after, soon after, the internet took that over. So anyway, sorry to go back. So you get these IDs and you and you do what? You know, We what, get these what IDs next? that said that yeah. we were like 18 and we go to this strip club at, on lunch for lunch, like on a Tuesday. And we were all like super proud of ourselves that we were going to go to the strip club. And we go in there and we were all nervous about using them. And the guy, the, you know, the, the bouncer at this really horrible strip club in the middle of the fucking San Fernando Valley didn't give a shit that we were there. There was they weren't going to get in trouble for, for it because there's no alcohol involved. They're like, yeah, go ahead. Go in. We don't care. And it, the, the kind of strippers that were uh, performing on a Tuesday at like, you know, 1230 right. in the afternoon in the middle of the San Fernando Valley in the, you know, the late 80s were not the ones that are on the Motley Crue videos. And let me just tell you that what I saw scarred me as much as the many C-section scars on the stripper who was performing right. for us. Um, it was not a good experience. This was not a uh, attractive lady. This is somebody who unfortunately probably had to do that in her life, you know, and it was it was really not a good thing. But nevertheless, we thought we were really cool for going to a strip club instead of it being the pathetic thing that it was. Yeah. I think uh, I think no matter what strip club is like strip clubs. I mean, I've been to a few in my day. You've been to a few. Right. It's a depressing. It is. I just want to shoot place. myself in the head when I'm there. I'm like, what the hell am I doing here? This is yeah. not for me. It's yeah. just depressing as hell. And it's so funny because the Motley crew, you know, they celebrate this, even though these guys, you know, they have beautiful wives and they, you know, they don't need to do this, but they just want to, they celebrate this in this kind of beach boys like song where they just name all these famous clubs. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's, and it, and I remember there was like an MTV promo for it. And I just thought this was like the saddest, most, you know, it just seemed like such a reach. I couldn't believe people were falling for this. You know, it was such a, um, it was such an obvious gimmick it on was, the record yeah. company's part and on Motley Crue's part to come out with this album. And it was just such the excesses of the eighties kind of hair metal at its peak. And to me, I was so against this by this time and I'll, we'll go into that, but, but yeah, it was just, uh, I just remember that at the time thinking even, you know, I'd never been to it. I was like, you know, 17 or 18 when this came out, I'd never been to anything like that, but I just thought it was the dumbest thing ever. You know, I had no use for it. It anyway. was dumb. It was yeah. dumb. And speaking of dumb, I want to talk about Tommy Lee. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll be talking about his, his intelligence more uh, in the history, I think. Um, I had a friend rate. in high school whose father was a contractor, like a general contractor. And Tommy Lee, at, at some point in the mid 80s, I don't remember the exact timeline, bought this huge house in Woodland Hills, uh, California. And he was having a bunch of work done on it. And one of the contractors on this was my friend's father. 
And this guy that I knew, I don't even remember his name now at this point, but he was not in the metal at all. He was in the like, you know, Depeche Mode and, you know, uh, The Cure and that kind of stuff. He right. didn't give a shit about Motley Crue. But he was telling, he knew that I was in the Motley Crue and he told me the story about how he went with his dad to Tommy Lee's house in, under construction or renovation or whatever it was and met Tommy Lee. And he's just like, yeah, Tommy Lee, he goes, I think he might be like uh, kind of retarded. You know, like he, he said, I, I think he's like he's like mentally challenged or, you know, he did not say he said retarded at the time. Right. But he's like, I, I think there's something wrong with him. Like he can't even track a conversation. He can't even follow what's going on. I don't know if he was on drugs or, you know, I'm sure that didn't help. But he's, but this guy was basically saying, like, he's one of the dumbest people I've ever come across in my entire life. And he's telling me about this. And I was like, really? Because I was so into Motley Crue. I was like, yeah, I could kind of see that. But I was sort of like shocked by that somehow i don't know why but- well interestingly enough uh you know tommy lee interacting with uh contractors actually is quite uh has some has some history to it it's lucky he didn't piss your friend's dad off or we might have a heather locklear sex tape you know that's it's, right uh, <laughs> because that's the story you know of the pam and tommy tape that he basically wouldn't give this contractor back his tool so the guy broke in stole the safe and you know yep. we got there, the there pam, we pam and tommy sex tape so it's like that's kind of funny that it's you have a story of him interacting with the contractor because yeah. that, there's a much more famous story as we know right that's right and i yeah. don't think there was any like non-payment issues i mean this dude right. is basically just saying he tagged along with his father to meet with tommy lee and tommy lee could have been, was he said like the dumbest person he's ever come across um, in his life, and this is not the type of guy who had any animus towards Motley Crue, or you know, it was you know an axe to grind. He was just sort of saying as an aside, this was a really dumb human, and I think he was right actually uh, in his assessment. So, girls, girls, girls came out. I was sort of into it just because it was a new Motley album, and I was anticipating it, but. I definitely did not think it was as good as the first two albums and maybe it was better than theater of pain and that's a low bar. And, but I was kind of still into them at that point. And I, again, maybe just, you know, a youthful exuberance or, you know, whatever you want to say. And I did go and see them alive on the girls, girls, girls tour at the forum. I think it was, it could have been the sports arena, but awesome. The forum. Awesome. I'm so jealous. Okay, dude, who opened? Did anybody I, I open? I knew you were going to ask this. I yeah. want to say it was like autograph. Oh, okay. Turn you know, up the radio. Turn that up was the like radio. Their, yeah. I think it was autograph. I'm not 100% certain. I'm sure it's on the internet somewhere. Someone will be like, no, oh, dude, you don't even remember. I saw a lot of shows during that time. Yeah, so we, I, could probably, we could probably find that and put a link on the Instagram. We yeah. have an Instagram and we'll put it on there. Whoever uh, you know, it was, to the it show. was not memorable. Mm-hmm. It was not a band I was right. into. Um, we were late. So, and no, oh, okay. one, no one cared about it anyway. Like it, it was not a band that anyone cared about, but as you know, non influential or consequential as that band was what happened when Motley Crue took the stage was very uh, consequential to me because it completely soured me on Motley Crue. And it was, I still think to this day, the worst show I've ever seen from like an established band. I'm not talking about like bands that we were in, you know, when we were in college or whatever, but like, right. um, it was the worst show I've ever seen. Um, they sounded horrible. Just, oh my God, they were so bad. Um, Vince Neil could not sing at all. And he wasn't any better back then. This has got to be 87, something, 88, maybe. Um, 
maybe 80, uh, 87 because it was in high school. Right? 87 so, is when Girls, Girls, Girls came out. Yeah. So it would have been 87. Yeah. So 87. And he sounded just like he does today, which isn't good. Wow. Folks. That's unbelievable because he, the, the if whole any, thing, we'll, we'll talk more about this, but the way he sounds today is, is crazy. Right. He, it's so he sounded it's, just like that. I, I, I would be a better, I'm a terrible singer. I would do better than him. You, uh, like no any question. one of us would in the world. I mean, I can't think of a worse vocalist right now. So that's amazing that he already was that bad. He already was that bad. He couldn't even get whole lines out. Like the many <laughs> things that we'll talk about in the videos we'll link to about the misheard lyrics where he's basically barfing out like unintelligible, you know, fragments of song lyrics and stuff like that. He was already doing that. He couldn't even keep up with the song. It was his, he sounded just absolutely awful. Um, I was shocked by how bad he sounded. I was really shocked by it. Mick Mars was solid. He just stood there the whole time. I mean, even back then, I know he had already been suffering the effects of his um, his spinal disease that Anky-lo- he has. Ankylodus spondylitis. Ankylosis yeah. spondylitis. Yeah, it's yes. a really terrible condition. That's why he can't move, really. Yeah. But yeah, it was already pretty bad then. I think it's, you know just been he's still going though you know it's like yeah it's kind of kind of cool i mean we'll talk more about it but i he's he's the only guy i can kind of admire in this man i I admire things about them but we'll go on uh but as a person he seems like the best person yeah which is again a very low bar yeah the least terrible human being in other words he he was he was fine he he was good i i mean i he sounded reasonable there's nothing he just stood there the whole time they're not very compelling as a performer Nikki Six um, is, and I'll talk about this in my evaluation a little bit. With just spent more time rolling around on the ground than playing, and it did not detract from the music whatsoever, which says something. Again, more about this later. <laughs> yeah, better off, right? Better off that he wasn't Tommy, playing. <laughs> Tommy Lee was okay. He this was the tour, if you remember, that he was in that drum kit that spun around upside wow. down. Wow. Wow. Which was Dude. kind of a cool visual trick for 10 minutes. But after that, oh. it was just sort of disorienting, you know, yeah. and it messed with his playing a bit. You could tell, and it's understandable why. Um, but, you know, he, he was okay. But the band as a whole sounded really just completely, completely awful. And I left that show just, uh, I don't know, disappointed. I, I, have, a, I have another question. I have another yeah. question. Did, was there any talking? Like, did they say anything or you oh, don't yeah. remember? Vince was doing that. Yeah. Like, Great to be in LA. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah totally. All his banter. It's the same shit. You know, he, this, again, he didn't have much to say. This is not yeah. um, somebody with a deep intellect who is going to, you know, wax poetic about their journey. You know, it was right, right. kind of like, you know, uh, show me your, you know, tits, girls, you know. Yeah, exactly. Like, like you expect that kind of shit. Yeah, you that know? kind of stuff. The usual stuff. It, it, it was just like. I just walked out of there. I was a huge fan going in. I walked out going, wow, I just wasted a lot of money and a lot of effort going to this show. And I, I was kind of done with them at that point to it. Right. You know, Before we way. move on from the, from the live thing, this episode is going to be epic because we both have a deep history with this band. I mean, yeah. I, I, this is a band that won't go away. That's the problem. They keep popping up, right? We, we as we'll talk about in the history, their history keeps they keep getting in the news and keep, you know, they keep adding to their legacy in one way, one uh, notorious way or another that has very little to do with the music. Right. That's but right. I will say, um, so my roommate, Evan, do you remember him? Right. He, he, um, 
uh, saw them too. You know, I think it might've been theater of pain or it might've, I think it might've been girls, 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 but I don't remember, but he, he saw them and he had the same reaction as you, you know, he liked the music and he just said, cause he liked Tommy Lee. He was a drummer, right. Yeah. And, you know, we'll talk about the merits of Tommy Lee there. There's, there's something there. Right. Yeah. And, um, uh, he, he liked him. And so he went to saw them and he said they were absolutely the worst thing ever. And the opening band was loudness, which is this oh, metal that band. Was from the Japan. band. Okay, that was yeah. it. It was loudness. It was not. Yeah. And difference. loudness, loudness is like, I mean, you know, the musicianship of loudness is like Akira Takasaki, the guitarist, is often called the Eddie Van Halen of Japan. Yeah. I mean, these guys can play the fucking shit out of it. Some was metal, loudness. right? Yeah. Now, as to their goofy songs, you know, they're maybe not that memorable. Maybe that's why you didn't remember them. But he just remembered thinking loudness just blew the fucking shit out of them on stage because they were loudness is a really good band. You know, they're classic Japanese metal and they can play. And, yeah. you know, just the contrast must have been really dramatic between the two. So, yeah, maybe you didn't see enough of their set. Or, I didn't. Or, yeah. you know, plus, you I, were such a crew fan, dude. You were, you just had your, your eyes only for the crew. I did. Uh, eyes and ears. I, and, you know, that must have been heartbreaking in a way. I so. did. I knew nothing of that band, <laughs> yeah. Loudness. I, I mean, right. they made no impression on me um, at that point. And we were late. So, you know, that's nothing on Loudness. You know, Yeah, they're really worth fun. revisiting, by the yeah. way. Especially the early records are really good. Like loudness, yeah. I as a kid, I laughed at rock and roll crazy nights or whatever they had because it was just like, uh, you know, the Japanese English and all that. But going back and listening to their music, they're actually really good metal bands. So it's worth if anybody's you know curious about Japanese heavy metal, just go look at Spotify for loudness. They're really good. Anyway, moving on. So that was girls, girls, girls live, and then we get to then we get uh, to Doctor Feel Good, Feel Good, the comeback, the comeback. And- <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know we, we, you were saying, I was saying like I was out at that point and couldn't give a shit about Dr. Feelgood. And you said, well, you, you brought up the fact that I bought it when we were in college yeah. and we listened to it, but it was not the same level of anticipation that I had for the prior albums for right. sure. Um, and I just wasn't that into that album and haven't been since, to be honest. You, you, like I, I've listened to that album maybe a handful of times. I couldn't give a shit. I've never. I remember to at the time years. listening to that album was a strange experience because you got that album and I thought, you know, this is actually not that bad, but it was weird because we were already getting into like the grunge kind of Nirvana stuff yeah. and just the contrast between this very produced, very late hair metal album, you know, 1989, you know, it was, it, it, it was decent though. And especially because I remember you had Girls, 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 you got all these records and we played Girls, Girls, Girls. And I just the thing I really remember about it is the album ends with this the worst version ever of Jailhouse Rock. And that's when you told me about the show when we were, uh, you know, we we were housemates and you told me, oh, yeah, this is this is how bad it was. It was worse than this, actually. And you're like telling me that Vince like kept missing lines and he could bear yeah. it was almost like he was running around too much and he couldn't keep up and That's you know right. some of these songs like shout at the devil the verses are like full of lyrics you know he's you yeah. know he's like going off and you can imagine live where he's like missing every other word and how terrible it sounds but the jailhouse rock is like that too and it's yeah. one of the worst i mean i hate any kind of old rockabilly cover when a band does it it's like come on, don't do this. You know, Just play one of your own songs. You know, it's like, but Motley Cruz is especially bad just because they're bad, you know? They so, but I remember listening to Darker Feel Good and it being kind of a weird thing. So I'm just like, I kind of knew, you know, it's, and it was massively popular as we'll talk about in the history. So it was a, it was their biggest selling record. So anyways. Um, yeah. Well, and the other album that we were just wouldn't stop listening to during that era was also Metallica Justice. 
which, right. you, you know, that sort of, it, I mean, the world had moved on. I had certainly moved on from Motley Crue. Um, and I was in much more into, you know, real musicians oh, yeah. at that point. And not just know, the grunge stuff, but the yeah. thrash, you know, thrash metal and speed metal t- had taken over right. Uh, for us. And, and so like, you know, right after this, another year later, there was Megadeth too, right. uh, with rust and peace, which is another amazing record. And, yeah, and we were much sure. more into that kind of stuff, uh, than this. Yep. Yeah. And it was a weird dichotomy too, because I was also always into all the maiden stuff and all the rush stuff and all the actually really great music, um, too. So it, I, you know, my time came and went with them, so to speak. And, and, uh, that's sort of my personal history and uh, I will turn it over to you. Yeah. Okay. So my history starts around the same time yours does. So basically I was really into metal, uh, in maybe not into metal so much as hard rock. I mean, I loved ACDC Led Zeppelin, you know, I liked Def Leppard a lot. I loved the, the album high and dry. I was really into that at this time. And I was into stuff like Judas Priest, uh, you know, British steel, And I was kind of getting into metal and, you know, dipping my toe in the waters, so to speak. But I was kind of conflicted because I also recently discovered Dark Side of the Moon, which is a whole different elaborate story. And it's kind of the most important album in my life because it kind of got me into music on a a level I wasn't before, where I wanted to start reading about music and getting into the Beatles and this old classic rock because it just blew my mind, you know. So I was kind of on the fence between still being into metal and also getting into more serious music, quote unquote, you know, like. Uh, classic rock, but also anything I'd read about the clash. I got London calling around this time, you know, Elvis Costello was really into him. Uh, So I was kind of on the fence with this stuff, but it was kind of weird because I'd heard Livewire on MTV. And I also was listening to an LA radio station called KNAC, which was a metal station at the time that was one of the few radio stations that would play this stuff. I mean, a lot of this stuff wasn't played by, you know, kind of the AO. AOR radio, like KMET and Metallica KLOS. all the time back then. Yeah, KNEC, you mean? Yeah, K. Yeah, yeah KNEC was 105.1, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. like 105.1 or 105.5. I don't remember. Oh, yeah, 105.5, it, that's right. Right, that's so KNEC was, was the first radio station to play Metallica. Yeah, I mean, they played Metallica before even, you know, anybody knew who they were, and Metallica was mostly a word of mouth phenomenon because right. they didn't get MTV airplane. MTV was the radio station of the country. Right. Right. So, um, yeah, I just remember hearing, I remember seeing the video and I don't remember which happened first, but I remember being at a Thanksgiving, uh, one year and, uh, you know, I had this cousin Jeff who was older than me and he was a rockabilly, you know, he was into the blasters and stuff, but he was also into X, you know, he was in the band X and he was into a lot of punk rock. And then, uh, and you know, most of in my other, his sister, Pam was more into new wave, you know, Duran Duran and stuff like that. Um, maybe not this early. I can't, you know, I kind of get things mixed up, but I just remember the story because Pam's boyfriend, you know, they were all the same age. They were like, uh, late high school, early college. And he was lamenting the fact that his little brother, you know, had gotten into Motley Crue. And this was when <laughs> Motley Crue was a local phenomenon, right? They had, they had, the album had come out, the videos were starting to come out, but they were really popular, as Jeff mentioned, in L.A. more than anywhere else, you know, because I think, you know, they were starting to blow up on the Sunset Strip even before, you know, they had the record deal. Right. And we'll talk more about that in the history. Right. So I remember I, I actually on the strength of Livewire, which is, you know, a really heavy, fast, powerful song. I had bought Too Fast for Love. And I remember I bought this. And a T-shirt of Dark Side of the Moon. I remember the T-shirt was too small for me. 
And I, I tried to wear it. It looked really bad. And I was just like, but I never returned anything. I was just such a weird person. I would not return it. So I just had this shirt I would never wear. And it was kind of emblematic of the transition I was going through in my musical taste. So that's why it was important. But I remember buying the album and thinking, this was a hokey album. Like, I remember seeing the back with the, you know, the four members are kind of um, diagonally arrayed. And in the center is this pair of sunglasses. And I remember thinking, this looks cheap. You know, this looks, and and I was right, right? It was an independent release, but I didn't know this. I didn't know that this was like a a release that had been done by Motley Crue and then Elektra picked it up and modified it and changed the cover around and stuff. I didn't realize this was essentially, as Vince says in the intro, a glorified demo, you know? But did did you think about this though? <laughs> Dude, yeah. I mean, I, I, I thought it would. I, I thought that was kind of funny, but I thought Livewire still was badass. But then when Come On and Dance, the second song comes on, it's just a flurry of cowbell. That, that, you mean that? Well, do you have the part where it's like, do, 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 you know yeah. that part? Yeah, play that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so stupid, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I, okay. When I listened to the album, Livewire was still great to me. And of course, Piece of Your Action. And these are typically, if anybody like doesn't like this album, they typically like these two songs, right? Yeah. These were the kind of songs that were played um, more than the others. But it kind of, you know, I kind of, at, at the time, I kind of knew that there was something special about this record and something different. But again, all of this stuff with this kind of combination between glam and metal was new. Really, this was the first time it had ever happened, this record. And we'll talk about that more. And um, it was, but it was goofy to me. And I kind of put it to the side as I got, you know, more into classic rock. So I kind of forgot about it a little bit. Um, I remember at the time, too, uh, my friend Joe and I, he was he was kind of following me musically and getting into stuff like Jimi Hendrix. He was a guitarist, too. So, of course, Jimi Hendrix was, like, huge to us. And he was getting into more classic rock. But he had this friend, Rick who was super into metal and metal was just getting so, you know, Judas Priest was coming out. Ozzy was out, you know, there's all this great stuff coming out in, it was a golden age, right. For metal. And he wanted to get his friend Joe back into metal. So he bought him the, all these records. He bought him blackout by the scorpions, which we mentioned on our scorpions episode. He bought him uh blizzard of Oz and he bought him shout at the devil. And I remember listening to shout at the devil and dude, the best thing, shout out the devil. I remember uh, in the beginning, in the, right? beginning the intro, the, kid, the kids are running wild and whatever. In the beginning, uh, you know, uh, good overpowered the evil of all men's sins. You know, it's this yeah, intro, oh God, dark yeah, intro, right. right? It's a uh, Nikki Six says it's inspired by um, the intro on uh, uh, what was it, uh, Future Idol or something. I'm Put it in the I'll put it in the notes, but it was Future Legend. No, I'm sorry, Future Legend from Diamond Dogs by David Bowie, which is similar kind of yeah, yeah. poetical, weird intro, spoken word intro to the album. And then it booms into Shout at the Devil. And I remember thinking, wow, this is a lot better than the album I have. You yeah. know, at the time I thought that because I was like, because it's so polished and it sounds like a record by a real band, you know, not like a demo. You know, it sounded right. so polished. You know, it's Tom Mormon's production. We'll go into that more. You know, and of course it had uh, Looks That Kill. That's a contender for the best Motley Crue song ever. It's fantastic, right? It could have been on the first album in some ways. It's kind of of that ilk. And then, you know, I remember thinking the album tracks weren't so hot and all that, but I do the hits on the record, Too Young to Fall in Love, still one of my top songs by the band. You know, a a fantastic song. 
But I remember uh, we we kind of goofed on it because we were kind of thinking metal is stupid too. Like we thought the songs were catchy, but we were kind of thinking all these albums were stupid. You know, now of course I've come come to see the light that they're actually great. Um, okay, and I remember smoking in the boys' room coming out, and this was again very influenced by Van Halen's transition to pop metal in 1984. It even has a comical video. You know, it's got the creepy guy from The Hills Have Eyes in the video. Um, you know, Motley Crue is doing kind of David Lee Roth antics, but yeah. I remember I hating this song and I hate it to this day. I hate the Brownsville station version. That's the band that was the original uh, kind of a glam rock, you know, shows their influences. But I also remember thinking this, even though I didn't like shout at the devil as much anymore. And I was kind of turned my back on metal. I remember thinking this was a huge, you know, uh, downturn in quality for the band, but it made sense that they were going in that direction because all of, kind of met a lot of metal. Some of metal was going deeper and harder, like Iron Maiden and getting more sophisticated. But most metal was going the way of hair metal and pop. And this made sense to me at the time. Uh, I hate Home Sweet Home too. I think it's a complete ripoff of a song by Aerosmith called Home Tonight from Rocks. I think it's almost the same fucking song. Obviously, we'll talk about the influences in the zeitgeist that Motley Crue was very influenced by Aerosmith, as were all the bands of this era. Um, and I don't like Home Sweet Home, but I would I still admire what a phenomenon it was. You know, they had this song called Dial, this show, this new show on MTV called Dial MTV, and it was you could call in an like an eight or nine hundred number and request the video. And Home Sweet Home won so many times that they MTV retired it. They made it ineligible because there was just these people who would spam the hotline and request Home Sweet Home, and it was like. I didn't understand the appeal, but what was happening was basically the metal ballad was being born. And this was right. kind of the biggest metal ballad of all time. And then you had stuff like Poison, Every Rose Has Its Thorn. And there were so many of these, right? And they were always, always big hits. Um, I think it was something for the girls, you know, maybe the women to listen to. I don't know. Maybe that's a little sexist, but but it, it, it was it was kind of a thing, you know, put up your lighter, that kind of thing at the shows. Um, I'm sure Jeff did that, you know, when they yeah, played it. I was right there. Uh, yeah. So um, I, I uh, was more looking to see if any of the ladies in the audience followed Vince's uh, admissions. Right. right. So uh, girls, girls, girls. Uh, I hated that. You know, didn't had no use for it. By that time, I was getting into uh, things. I was just starting to get into stuff like Metallica. I didn't get into Metallica as early as Jeff. You know, I because it was metal, I was very skeptical. But then someone played me the song Master of Puppets and I'm like, wait, there's something here. This is different, you know. And um, I always had respect for stuff like Iron Maiden and Judas Priest. I always knew they were talented and good musicians and I liked the music, but I just wouldn't admit it because I was too cool for school and the critics didn't get on board. So I was I was just more deep into, you know, stuff. Like I love the replacements and I love, you know, Prince and the stuff that was more critically acclaimed and R.E.M. And that was kind of the stuff I listened to at this time. But as but I was starting to transition and get back into some of the metal because of Metallica. And again, they were critically acclaimed, too. So it's OK for me to like that. Um, so at any rate, I remember Wildside. I like that song a lot. I think it's a pretty good hard rock song. I think it's probably the best song on that record. Um, and I remember um, in college talking about Motley Crue because they were still you know, kind of big. And, you know, with Dr. Feel Good, the mirror, and I had this friend Maureen and I remember her saying like, you know, I remember saying like, why do girls like Motley Crue? They're so dumb. And, you know, they're not that good looking. And she's like, you're wrong. They're great looking and you're just jealous. And, you know, I didn't understand why girls didn't like my bad teeth, pimply faced self who was, <laughs> wouldn't talk to them. 
you know, over <laughs> someone like, you know, uh, Tommy Lee, who, when he puts on makeup, looks like a beautiful woman. You know, yeah. I didn't understand why they would go for him over me. And of course we, Tommy Lee has with some other giant, superpowers. With a giant surprise in the middle. If yeah. Right. I think he's a woman. Yeah. Well, you know, those cowbell parts, dude, on, on, uh, uh, this is a little known fact I was going to spring later during the history. They were all played with his dick. And he played the cowboy. <laughs> oh, there you go. The singer web. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yuck, 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 yuck. All right. So anyway, uh, and then a, a hugely influential movie, which we will do an episode on. And so I'm not going to go too deep into it. That kind of brought me back full circle to some of the hair metal stuff was Metal Years. And that's when we learned about the band London, who we'll be talking about in the history and how they play a role in this and how they are kind of the uh, incubator for all of hair metal. And we'll talk about that. And they're featured in this uh, Metal Years documentary. And Metal Years is one of my favorite movies of all time. Of course, we'd be remiss not to mention Guns N' Roses. Uh, Guns N' Roses, in a way, was kind of the uh, savior of this kind of music, in a way, because they revitalized it and they were much more edgy and just face it better than all the rest of the bands. Uh, You know, they came out with Appetite for Destruction. I have my beef with this album, but there's no doubt the place this album holds in history. It's a five star uh, debut. It's an absolute classic. There's no denying this. History has already spoken, but we'll probably talk about them at some point. Yeah. Um, But uh, and Motley Crue influenced by that obviously came up with Dr. Feelgood. Uh, I remember listening to this with Jeff. And as I mentioned, you know, because of Metallica and because of the grunge thing, I was starting to get into Soundgarden and Nirvana and, uh, you know, to me, this was uh, really strange uh, to listen to this album, and it just felt dated already to me. Even though it was the band's comeback in a way from the from the last two albums, that it's a better album than those, um, and it was massive. It's their biggest seller of all time. It sold six million, and they so all the records are pretty much up until this point. After we'll talk about most of the records are gold, even the '90s ones, uh, but these are all platinum records. You know, they they were a huge, huge band. Um, and, uh, you know, I also remember at this time I got into the replacements. They have a notorious live cassette. It's only on cassette called when the shit hits the fans. The first half of the album is the band is notorious for sabotaging themselves on stage. They would get drunk. And the first album is all these fragments of a million cover songs. Like they play thin Lizzie, they play bad company. They play Led Zeppelin all really badly. But what's really funny to me at the time was they played Merry-Go-Round. <laughs> and I was not even uh, Merry-Go-Round, uh, you know, it's a song, uh, one of the deep cuts on uh, Too Fast for Love. And it's never something that was played on the radio. So I'm like, these guys must have heard this record, you know? Yeah. And they played this, I think they're I think they're goofing on it, but they play this really bad version of Merry-Go-Round. Um, I was going to play it, but it's so bad. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll Instagram it. It's worth checking out, but it's, uh, I didn't, you know, we had... I really wanted wanted to keep the clips, you know, and we I knew we would have a lot of clips about establishing the history of this album. And I didn't want to throw in that. Um, and it's 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 just a minute or two because they keep the way the album is. They stop, you know, and then they'll just play something else because they're so wasted. Anyway, I remember hearing that at this time. Um, and then uh, it was around this time, I think, too, when I got into the grunge stuff, I started to revisit this record and really started to realize there was something punk rock and edgy about this album that the rest of the Motley Crue albums don't have. And we'll talk more about that in the evaluations and the history and the influences. Well, hey, you know what else the rest of the albums don't have? <laughs> yeah, again, <laughs> they don't have the cowbell, right? Um, <laughs> that, 
Okay. Okay. So, so I, and the other thing I'm going to say about Dr. Feelgood is my feelings about it is, you know, Motley Crue, as incompetent as they were, they got a producer, Bob Rock. He made the album sound great. Uh, he also made the cult huge. You know, the cult were kind of a alternative mix of alternative and hair metal. And, you know, he made this out, he produced this album, Sonic Temple, and made them a massive art, uh, a band. And Metallica heard these records and liked the way they sound. And so they decided to hire Bob Rock, and he basically ruined the band with the terrible Black album, uh, which, um, you know, a lot of people like. Uh, I They're think wrong. we're not. We're, we're not among them. I remember hearing that and being really disappointed. So F you to Bob Rock. Um, yep. And then, okay, so then after after that, I remember hearing nothing from Motley Crue for a while, right? Um, uh, the um, uh, And they, I remember that but then in 94, they got a new singer, John Karabi. They came out with this album called Self-Titled Motley Crue. And it's basically a cash grab for the grunge market yeah. that completely shameless. failed and completely right. Shameless. I call it I call it Motley and Chains or Crew Garden because that's yeah. what it sounds like. John Karabi is a dead ringer for Chris Cornell. Yeah, and you know it's it's just so derivative and it's actually I it's one of these albums that does have its fans and I've tried to listen to it and get into it and it's just boring as it's just really boring and it's such a it's such an obvious uh, cash grab that it it's uninspired right. Um, I remember Vince had a solo career too. You know, that's this when Motley Crue broke up. We'll get more into that history, uh, exposed. I didn't know about this at the time. I actually think this is a better album than the Motley Crue self-titled. Um, it's not very good, but it has a really good band. It's got Steve Stevens, you know, amazing guitarist from Billy Idol. Um, I also remember there's a website in the early days of the internet a few years later that I was really into called Metal Sludge. And it was this med website that was made by Stevie Rochelle, who was in a hair metal band called Tough. They were like a D-rate band that I think came out too late. And, uh, you know, Stevie Rochelle is famous just because he looks like a female when he yeah. dresses up. I mean, he's really beautiful. Let's just put it that way. You make a, a, you know, he could transition and be very convincing. Uh, so anyway, but he's also really funny and he created this website and he just makes fun of all these bands. And I was really into that at the time. I also remember the, um, is that Motley the one that Crew- had all the groupie stuff? And all the groupies, like the penis yeah. chart and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's still okay. around, but it looks like a GeoCities website. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like really bad. But um, it was really funny. I remember sharing that with Jeff at the time and thinking he would get a kick out of it. But the guy yeah. just, he has a really funny sense of humor and he just goofs on all these guys, um, especially their attempts in the 90s to be relevant. And this was uh, true of no more, no more true of any band than Motley Crue. They came up with this album called Generation Swine. It's basically Nine Inch Nails. You know, Motley yeah. Crue, it's absolutely awful. It's such a uh, a desperate grab for an audience. And I really don't understand. I mean, I guess I understand it because the record company is probably saying, you know, bands, bands aren't into this old thing you guys were doing with, the, you know, the home sweet home and all that. They want to hear, uh, you know, Nine Inch Nails. But if I wanted to hear Nine Inch Nails, why wouldn't I just listen to them? You know, I don't want to hear like Motley Crue do it even, you know, badly. You know, I want to hear... Uh, the, the the people are doing it. It seems like it'd be better if they would have at least pleased their fans by doing kind of what they knew how to do. Um, they came out with, a, uh, and obviously they broke up around this time. You know, there was all this, Tommy Lee was, you know, wanting to do this new music, but he was also into this new, new metal that was coming out. And so he created this terrible band called Methods of Mayhem. I remember listening to that and hearing that at the time. And it's one of the worst albums ever made. I, mean, um, I didn't listen to any of this. I couldn't have cared less. Yeah. So around this time, you know, I was I was uh, in a band with a friend of mine, uh, you know, my friend Michael, and we had this other friend named 
ironically, Chris Cornell, not that Chris Cornell who played guitar. And I remember talking with him about this album and he had the exact same view as me. And I think, Jeff, we have a very similar view of this album, Too Fast for Love, where it's it's great, but it's almost by accident because it's like the band was trying to do something and they failed, but they achieved something else by accident because it's such a goof. There's so many, you know, we played the cowbell. We're going to get into it, how goofy this album could be. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and I bonded with him over this because we both thought, yeah, this is the best Motley Crue album, you know? And then I remember uh, I used to go to these different events. You know, my cousin and another friend of mine, Bob, were wrestlers, but they also did this thing called Steaky's Peep Show, Large and Lovely Go-Go Girls, right? And actually, Tommy Lee showed up at one of these, and he hit on one of my uh, my cousin's wife, uh, Tigger, one of her friends, Shannon. He actually sent one of his guys over to say, hey, Tommy Lee wants to meet you. This is when he had broken up with Pam because he had beaten her up. Uh, which we'll talk about, I'm sure. Um, but I remember hearing that story about how Shannon Shannon kind of smart, sharply said, you know, if he wants to talk to me, he should come talk to me himself, you know? Um, but anyway, that's the Stinky's Peep Show is the kind of thing that Tommy Lee would go to. It's the kind of thing I went to. And that's where I yeah. met my wife. And I met my <laughs> wife. But wow. be clear, she was not in the peep show, right? She was not in the peep show, though. She's she definitely could have been. She's very beautiful, you know, to say that. But she's that's not her thing, you know. But we were we were all drinking, and and uh she was a friend of my friend Bob's, and you know, I had I had kind of seen her before and I was attracted to her and thought she was Bob's girlfriend. So I was like, bummer. But then it turned out she was just a friend, and we started talking while we were talking to each other. What comes on the DJ plays come on and dance, uh, which is perfect, right? Which is perfect for. Uh, you know, large and lovely go-go girls to dance to. It's that kind of song, uh, you know, and with the whole Motley Crue stripper thing, you know, there you go. Um, and, you know, I told her how much I loved it, you know, and we talked about how goofy it was and how weird it was of a song, but it's, that's, it is my favorite song by Motley Crue. And that's part of why it's got yeah. sentimental attachment for me. Um, but I'll go into more detail of why I think it's so good. Um, and of course we remember the Pam and Tommy video, right? That yeah. was, that was a huge thing. Uh, I, I think I saw clips of it on the internet at one point, but I've never seen the whole thing. My wife's seen the whole thing. She was at some party and they watched it and, yeah. you know, let's just say, uh, the Tommy Lee's, uh, cowbell drumstick is quite impressive. Anyway, um, my friend, I mentioned, uh, I, I also mentioned my friend Aaron in past episodes. He's a record collector. He got the leather, uh, leather records version of this. So, Motley Crue will go into the history of what Leather Records version is, but that was the original version of this that was released by the band. Um, and I didn't listen to it at the time. I've only listened to it recently, and it's uh, quite different, as we'll go into. Um, of course, one of the biggest milestones that, of Motley Crue's career, and I think the most important contribute contribution to pop culture and to c- the culture at large, even more so than this album, is the book they put together with author Neil Strauss, which is called The Dirt. I think I have read every book in, out there. I've read, I love reading rock bios. I've read Keith Richards. You know, I've read Pete Townsend. I've read Bruce Springsteen. I've read everything from Rick Springfield to Pat Benatar to, you know, John Lydon. You know, I've read all the books by, you know, by Vince Neil, the other books by Nikki Six. And I can definitively say that The Dirt is the greatest book by about a rock band even better than like hammer of the gods and all that oh yeah yeah i don't think anything comes close because it's you it's like a work of art it's unique and i'll be reading from it late uh uh actually i'll be reading from it uh 
uh, a little later in the history, you know, because okay. I think it's important to document its greatness. But for those of you who haven't read it, um, you know, the movie, I'll just skip ahead. The movie sucks. Uh, it's not good. It, it's not a true representation of the band. I don't think the dirt is true either. I think there's a lot of tall tales to telling, but it's basically kind of an oral history and kind of a history. The one flaw is it doesn't talk that much about the music. It's much more about the noto- their notorious actions. And Which I think their contribution is, appropriate is much more. Them. Right. Yeah. Right. I think musically, I think this album is a great contribution. We'll talk about its legacy, but I think the legacy of them as kind of bad boys of rock and roll and all this is much more prominent. And of course the video and all these different notorious things they've done. Um, And then I just remember recently, you know, we've talked about Vince Neil's terrible singing. It turns out it was always terrible, but uh, he's really bad now live. And and there's some videos out there, um, you know, uh, of him singing and he's really let himself go, uh, you know, uh, and, and that's where we are. So with that said, let's move into our, Zeitgeist section wait, on the wait, band. Wait. Oh yeah. Poor cowbell, dude. All right, a little cowbell yep. break. There you oh, go. Oh yeah, cowbell. Okay. So influences on the band. Now there's some obvious influences and then there's some that are just baffling to me. Like I, when I listen to Too Fast for Love, I have a hard time thinking where all of it came from together because it's just such a unique mix of genres. Okay, the first one, let's go, let's just make no bones about it. Alice Cooper has such an overriding influence on this whole era. Yeah. I mean, of all hair metal, you take guns and everything from Guns and Roses to Rat to you name it. Alice Cooper is there. It's, uh, you know, you listen to a song like Under My Wheels. This could have been on Appetite for Destruction. And in fact, Guns N' Roses did cover it, um, you know, for the uh, Metal Years soundtrack. Um, I would say uh, Alice Cooper, when I first heard the album years later, uh, Love It to Death, it was like a revelation to me because this album was released in 1971. I had heard 18, but when I heard songs like uh, uh, We've Still Got a Long Place to Go, I thought this is so hair metal. You know, so he is definitely an influence. And then, of course, the the showmanship, the whole aspect of Motley Crue being not only glam, but also being kind of satanic with the skulls and all that. We'll get into more of that later on who really influenced that. But indirectly, Alice Cooper with his kind of dark show, uh, you know, his macabre show with the guillotine and the chopping the head off and you know, all of this is definitely influential. And then, of course, there's the original glam rock, right? So we talk about 80s hair metal as glam, but there's also glam rock of the 70s, a.k.a. glitter rock, right? We also call that glitter rock. And there was band, there was David Bowie, loom very large, right? Mott the Hoople is another influence with direct ties to Nikki Six we'll get into. And then, of course, the sweet or sweet, as we call them in the United States, right? One thing that Vince Neil said, or that, uh, I'm sorry, Nikki Six said when he got, when he heard Vince Neil, he thought he sounds just like Brian Connolly of The Sweet. This is my dream singer, right? And we'll talk more about Brian Connolly. He also figures in this in the history. Uh, but Vince Neil is not nearly <laughs> the singer that Brian Connolly is. Let's just put it that way. He does not have the range. Brian Connolly is actually a really good vocalist. Um, you know, I should also mention Queen here. Queen was a huge influence on on everybody in the 80s, I think, especially their classic period. Um, and they were a little bit of a mix of genres, right? They had some Beatle influence. They had some prog rock influence, but they definitely had the glam rock influence as sure. well. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mentioned David Bowie. I should mention David Bowie, you know, even though they don't 
at the musical sound, there's you don't see much David Bowie, but I just think it's the idea of the Ziggy Stardust image and the rock. And there is some of that, but it's tangential. And obviously, I mentioned Future Legend influencing in the beginning. So that means Nikki Six did listen to these records. And when we're talking about the influences of glam rock, we're talking about Nikki Six almost more than anybody, uh, because he is the main songwriter of the band, and it's really his band, as we'll go into uh, shortly. Uh, another strange influence to me. Uh, well, obviously, we can't skip over the New York Dolls. I almost skipped over there. They do have a, a kind of Kevin Bacon-like connection to the band that I'll get into in the history. But um, the New York Dolls, uh, even though the sound of the music isn't so much there, the whole idea of dressing up and with makeup and all of that, and then being kind of bad boys and drug users and all that. I mean, obviously, that did come from the Rolling Stones as well and Keith Richards. But it was directly influenced by the dolls. The dolls loom large in this story and the story of 80s hair metal in general, even though their music is quite different. Um, I've always thought Too Fast for Love is what the because the dolls were such a legend and the critics liked them so much. When I listened to them, I was completely underwhelmed. And I thought Too Fast for Love is what they should have sounded like. Yeah, because it's 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 like it's glammy, but it's heavy. Right. It rocks. The dolls, you know, they still are stuck in that Rolling Stones kind of thing. Um, and there's also the really strange influence of Eric Carmen and the Raspberries, right? The uh, One of the later editions of the album that was released, uh, I think, in the 2000s, when Motley Crue got the rights back to their music and they remixed everything. There are very many different versions of this album, let's just say. They tacked on an extra cut uh, called Tonight, which is a cover of a Raspberry song. I'll be playing so I that, that later. So we'll get uh, to Okay, that. cool. Uh, cool. Uh, and then 70s rock, right? We've got Ted Nugent is a huge one, right? Ted Nugent kind of had, you know, he had a mixture of sounds, but he definitely had kind of a, a badass riff rock sound that, you know, was definitely influencing the band. Aerosmith, again, another band that looms absolutely large over the 80s. Uh, all of these guys, Axl Rose, Slash, you know, they all listened to, to uh, the members of Rat. They all listened to Aerosmith and Nikki Six was no exception. As you can hear, I think there's a lot of Joey Kramer also in Tommy Lee's drumming. Um, Tommy Lee, I think we'll talk about his drumming and I, I'm kind of baffled by all the different influences. But uh, when I listen to the song Nobody's Fault, the use of hi-hat on rocks, it's very much like what Tommy Lee does. Um, uh, Kiss can't, you know, Kiss again, they loom large over the whole 80s clam rock scene and hair metal scene. And interestingly enough, again, with the raspberries, the poppy side, there's definitely a poppy element to these songs. And Nikki Six was an absolutely huge fan of Cheap Trick. He mentions that many times in his, in not only The Dirt, but also in his other book called The First 21, which documents his years leading up to Motley Crue. It doesn't include anything about Motley Crue. It's all about his years leading up to that. Um, and he also mentions punk rock, which I've always been kind of skeptical of. But I do think there is an element of that on Too Fast for Love. You can't really hear any punk rock on any of the other albums. Like even Shout at the Devil, even though there's some fast songs, they're much more metal. Um, I think like something like Public Enemy One, Enemy Number One does have a kind of punk aspect to it as to the song Too Fast for Love, even though they're they're definitely heavy metal too. Um, and then we should talk about Mick Mars' influences. And he mentioned some of the, Nikki Six in a clip at the beginning of the show did mention some of those because I find them very strange, right? He says Jeff Beck and Paul Butterfield. And if you've ever listened to Jeff Beck or Paul Butterfield, 
you know, Jeff Beck does a variety of playing, right? He does some jazz fusion. He does some kind of heavy rock, but most of his stuff is blues. And same with Paul Butterfield really sounds like this, almost like Peter Green era Fleetwood Mac. You know, it's barely electric blues. I just don't hear that in Mick Mars is playing. Mick Mars is playing is very heavy. And it's, he's kind of got this, these menacing kind of spidery solos that just sound like heavy metal to me. They don't sound like uh, these, these guys at all. Maybe so it was kind of ironically on like a uh, theater of pain. I think some of his playing is more bluesy, traditional bluesy than other places. And he's got kind of a blues slide on some of the songs, right? He kind of revs, revs up or slides. Like I would say on something like kickstart my heart is almost like it's heavy, but it's like a bluesy kind of heavy. And actually there's a lot of bluesy influence on that record, but I always thought of that as an influence from from Appetite for Destruction, you know, trying to get on that, you know, like Rattlesnake Shake is like, you know, it's kind of, it's more of a light version of what, you know, something like Guns N' Roses would do, you know. Um, and then what's interesting is I, the thing I find baffling is all of these bands, and we'll talk about the band London and how they differ from Motley Crue. The band London was Nikki Six's band right before forming Motley Crue and how they differ. But a lot of these bands aren't that heavy. Right. There's not a heaviness to even the Stooges is not heavy in the way you think of like something like Iron Maiden or Judas Priest being heavy. But I hear that heaviness on Too Fast for Love. And I'm wondering where the hell did that come from? Yeah. Because Nikki Six has been, you know, he does he respects Iron Maiden and thinks they're good guys. But you because know, they opened up for them, you know, early on. But he never he said he doesn't like their music. You know, it's not his thing. It, he, he was always like, I'm more punk and more glam. But when you listen to the sound of Mick Mars's guitar, when you listen to the drums and 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 everything on Too Fast for Love, it's heavy, right? It sounds like metal. And something like Livewire is like almost of the pace of something like Exciter from Judas Priest. It's fast metal. And I just don't hear where, you know, I don't, in researching this, I couldn't figure out what they like. I know, I know that, I think Tommy Lee had mentioned going to see Judas Priest. So I know he was into them. Right. But um, I just don't understand where that heaviness came from if it didn't come from something like Judas Priest, because, that you know, other than Iron, Iron Maiden was still really new when Motley Crue was forming. And I'm not sure how many people knew about them. And, and you know, other than these nerd record collectors like Lars Ulrich and the like, you know, I'm not sure how popularly, but Judas Priest was already pretty big. You know, they That's had right. their anthemic, you know, something like Shout at the Devil, the song. I think that comes from the Judas Priest kind of anthemic thing. Uh, a lot. And it's very influenced by that. Uh, but it's always been hard for me to tell. And then as far as, so that's influences, but as far as what was going on at the time, well, obviously it's that sunset strip scene. And this was the beginning of that. Right. And the first band to break on the sunset strip was actually a strange one because they're kind of almost like the grandparents or the parents of these bands, which is Van Halen, right? Van Halen was one of these bands, uh, you know, the record industry was not interested in this kind of music. They were looking at the new wave. They thought that new wave was was going to be the future. And they were not interested in these bands, as we'll go into in Motley Crue's history. But Van Halen took forever to get signed. I mean, they were in the scene in the you know early to mid 70s and they were playing these clubs for years and years and years. And it's ridiculous to me listening to their music that someone didn't jump on them right away, you know, because obviously whoever did. Right. But once once uh 
once uh, Warner Brothers Records or whatever did jump on them, uh, they became huge right away, right? right. <laughs> they were massive right away from the get-go. So they were like, they were the patron saints of this. They played those same LA clubs. You know, they were they were known mostly for doing a long residency at Gazzari's uh, on the Sunset Strip, right? And then the other, um, there were other clubs. There was, so there was Gazzari's, there was, the Roxy was, was a really new one, but there was also the Troubadour, which had been around since the 60s. And it was mostly a folk club. And then the Starwood, uh, which we'll talk more about in the history, was also another one. And then you had Rodney Bingenheimer's English Disco a few years before, which had, you know, played host to the glam scene. You had Kim Fowley. He was kind of this weird, uh, kind of sleazy promoter who had who had been responsible for the runaways. He was around the scene. Rodney Bingenheimer, again, who was a DJ on K-Rock, was around the scene. But then you also had a, this guy, Blackie Lawless. And Blackie Lawless had formed this band called Sister. And this band would be very influential in Nikki Six's life. And Nikki Six was actually a member of them uh, at one point. But Blackie Lawless was this guy who combined the dark side of, of rock and he had pentagrams and he, you know, he wore all black. And But he also had a history with glam. And so it, he, he, you know, he very much reminds me of Alice Cooper in a lot of ways. Uh, but he was a huge influence. And then the other band around this time that would become big, they would actually become the first metal band to have a number one album in the United States was Quiet Riot. Yeah. And they were in their early form with a guitarist named Randy Rhodes. And they would also play a sidebar role in the history. Um, so other than that, for the zeitgeist and influences, Jeff, did you want to add anything or should we move on to the history? I did. I wanted to add this. That's what I want to <laughs> yeah, it's like almost every song, yeah. you know, has has cowbell. Um, all right. So Nikki Six background. Wow, this is going to be an epic one, guys, because I just have a lot to say about the background of the story because it's really interesting. And then I think we're going to go really deep into this record because we both, uh, you know, have a lot to say about it. Um, so as far as the background of Nikki Six, you know, he grew up in kind of a broken home. You know, his dad left when he was three. He was in between living with his mom in Seattle and other places. And he lived with his grand, the one stable influence in his life is he had these grandparents who lived in Jerome, Idaho. So he was, uh, you know, kind of weirdly working, you know, on a farm in Jerome, Idaho, but also kind of dreaming of becoming a rock star. And at one point he lived with a bunch of other kids whose parents kind of abandoned them and did a bunch of drugs. And, but he had this uncle, uh, who was another stabilizing influence in his life named Don Wasserman. And Don Wasserman also happened to be the head of Capitol Records. And when Nikki Six was really young, he was 18 when he graduated high school. I don't even know if he graduated, actually, I don't remember. But um, if he did, it was barely, let's say. He moved in with Don Wasserman in L.A. and he decided to move to L.A. to make it. He decided he wanted to make it. Um, and he was playing bass during this whole time. He never, you know, we'll talk about his level of musicianship. He never really practiced all that much, but he was a songwriter and he had big the dreams, let's say. say. Yeah. Yeah. He never practiced. Shut yeah. Up. He grew up with Don Wasserman kind of sending him like promotional material and posters and stuff that he would get. And, you know, of course he would get stuff for Sweet because Sweet was on Capitol Records. And we'll talk a little bit more of that as we go through the history. Uh, he moved to L.A., and, uh, you know, he was trying to uh, get in various bands and he got into this band called Sister with Blackie Lawless, which also had a guy named Dane Rage, who was a drummer and this guitarist, Lizzie Gray. And Sister played 
you know, you can actually look on YouTube. We'll probably link to it in the Instagram. You can hear some early sister and it's kind of very much of the Alice Cooper slash glam variety, as I mentioned. And what's interesting about this guy, Blackie Lawless, is he had actually played with the New York Dolls uh, when Johnny Thunders had left the band and the Dolls were starting to fall apart. He had actually played on their record and he had actually um, formed a band with uh, uh, Arthur Kane, uh, the bassist uh, called Killer Kane. And you can find them uh, on Spotify and YouTube and you find a couple songs like that Blackie, Blackie Lawless sang with him. And... That didn't pan out. Nothing happened with Killer Kane. So he formed this band, Sister. And, you know, he's a very temperamental guy. You can find all kinds of stuff about Blackie Lawless and how problematic he is. Later, uh, for those of you who don't know, he became uh, kind of a star in his own right in a relatively minor band called Wasp. That's kind of of the same variety as Motley Crue. They're kind of a heavier version of Glam. Uh, and he uh, ended up firing. Uh, they, they featured, by the way, Wasp also features a guy named Chris Holmes, who is one of the stars of the decline of civilization metal years uh, movie. If you ever see that. So there you yeah, go. in a way he kind of steals the whole movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's an amazing sequence. It's one of my favorite sequences in a film ever in a documentary film, but that's for another show, right? We'll get into that. That movie deserves its own show. Um, and so he, he ended up leaving, uh, forming, uh, forming a band called London with Lizzie Gray on guitar and Dane Rage on drums. And uh, Blackie Lawless would join that band for a limited time later. Uh, he would come and go. But um, the interesting thing about London is they were a very 70s version of glam. And you can find a couple of clips on YouTube of what they sounded like. They don't really sound like Motley Crue. They sound like a real throwback. And that's what they were kind of trying to do because, again, um, you know, Nikki Six was enamored of Sweet and those that era and Bowie and those and Alice Cooper in the early 70s. So they kind of sounded like that. They were a lighter version. Um, and they started playing uh, gigs at this club called the Starwood. And they actually were not only playing gigs at the Starwood, they had formed a couple of dubious businesses and things. And, and you know, there's a bunch of stories in the first 21 about Nikki Six's weird things where he, he was a carpet cleaner for a while and he would leave the machine running and go raid people's medicine cabinets and like either take the drugs or sell the drugs to make extra money. Got fired for that reason. Um, and they had all these schemes, but they, they ended up getting a janitorial job at the Starwood. So imagine this, they're playing to these crowds. They're getting really popular at the Starwood. And then they have to clean up after them their own show. You know, it's kind of funny. Uh, the Starwood was run by this very nefarious character named Eddie Nash, who was a um, a, an interesting uh, character in L.A. He was like a drug dealer and kind of a crime lord. And he figures, if you've ever seen the film Wonderland with uh, Val Kilmer, he, uh, it's the true story of John Holmes and how John Holmes barely escaped being murdered by this guy and how a bunch of people in his apartment were completely murdered by this guy, Eddie Nash. Eddie Nash is also featured uh, or referred to obscurely in the character that Alfred, Alfred Molina plays in Boogie Nights. He's the character who loves the song Sister Christian. It's a really great scene, but that's uh, based on Eddie Nash. With the firecrackers, right? So, right? right. So London... You know, they were playing gigs and they uh, had this original singer. Actually, I get the order mixed up of their singers. One, They had one singer named Michael White, who was a little bit too much like Robert Plant for Nikki Six's Taste. It wasn't what they were going for. They, they, they said, you know, what they did was they created this newspaper ad and they said they wanted a singer like Brian Connolly of Sweet, or they decided to get really obscure and 
after Ian Hunter left Mott the Hoople, they became Mott and they got this other singer named Niall, Nigel Benjamin. And so they're like, well, we want someone who sounds like Nigel Benjamin. So this British guy shows up and he says, I think I might be the guy for you. And Nikki Six is skeptical, but then he's like, actually, I am Nigel Benjamin. So they got the guy they were from, from Mott the Hoople or from Mott to be the singer. And that didn't last very long. Uh, because Nigel Benjamin basically thought they sucked. And he also thought that Nikki Six was a terrible musician, which we'll get to more. Um, but they did try. What happened was Nikki Six tried to use his uh, influence with Don Wasserman. He got not only did he try to get Don, Don Wasserman to sign the band, which he refused, um, but he also tried to get Brian Connolly to be their singer of Sweet. Because so Don Wasserman set up a call uh, with Brian Connolly and Nikki Six got to talk to his hero and he said, you know, hey. I sent you, you know, he sent him a tape, he sent him a press kit. And Brian Connolly actually said, no one's going to like this music, mate. He's all, I'm, 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 uh, you know, not interested. And Nikki Six was really mortified by this. But uh, London also had a song called Public Enemy Number One, which is actually written by Lizzie Gray. Um, and Lizzie Gray is given partial credit on the song, but supposedly, according to him, he wrote the whole song. Um, and what would happen is Nikki Six would leave London to form Motley Crue. But London is still around to this day. Now, Lizzie Gray, RIP, has passed away. He passed away in 2019. But, uh, the mem- you know, various members throughout the years had come and gone in London. And essentially what they were is like an incubator for this scene in L.A. And that's why Nikki Six is essentially, in a way, created the whole L.A. scene himself. I mean, you could say Van Halen kind of started it and then Quiet Riot. But really, London was the incubator for it because you had people like uh, Tony Richards of Wasp. You had Blackie Lawless, as I mentioned. You had Fred Curry of Cinderella was in London for a while. Izzy Stradlin slash Steven Adler, all from Guns N' Roses fame, were in London. So, so many people had passed through London that in a way it kind of was the incubator for this whole thing, right? Um, after, after around this time too, uh, Kim Fowley, you know, I mentioned he was the weird Sunset Strip uh, promoter. He had uh, known Nikki Six, and he asked Nikki Six to write him a song that he was going to try to sell to Blondie. And that song was called Stick to Your Guns. And it would be the first song that Motley Crue would write. Um, and we'll talk more about that because it's not on every version of the album, but it is on the original version of Too Fast for Love. Um, so that's basically the story leading up to Motley Crue for uh, Nikki Six. And then you have Mick Mars, whose original, you know, real name is Bob Deal. He was like 10 years older than the rest of the members of the band. And, you know, you, you heard that whole story. I don't need to recount it about him, Nikki Six meeting him in it when he worked at a liquor store, hearing him, you know, going to seeing him play. And then later him, I, you know, coincidentally auditioning for the band. Right. Um, uh, and we, as we mentioned, Mick Mars does have a, a permanent uh, disability called ankylosing spondylitis. It basically kind of freezes up your spine. So he had kind of a hunchback a posture and he experiences pain all the time. You know, it's a really terrible condition to have. And he's tried various therapies over the years, but nothing's really worked, but he's still going, you know, and he's pretty old. So uh, he was in a, a cover band called White Horse. And as, as we played at the beginning, the original name was Motley Crue, although it was spelled different. Motley Crue, C-R-O-O, Alas, <laughs> the band Slade, like, you know, a very British glam rock version. Um, and then he also went by the pseudonym Zorky Charlemagne. So yeah. I think Mick Mars was a good, good choice. <laughs> um, 
Tommy Lee was the young, is the youngest member of the band. He was in a, a series of bands, one called Route 101 and Sweet 19. He grew up in the LA area. Um, he would eventually audition for Motley Crue. Uh, he also uh, was the res- one responsible for getting Vince um, uh, to be a member of Motley Crue because he had seen Vince play in high school parties. Now, this LA scene, Van Halen was also doing this. This was a very common thing where people would have these parties in backyards and stuff and, and they would have bands play there. And Van Halen was notorious because they would have massive parties. There were these rich kids in Pasadena who had these massive properties and people would charge admission to these parties and the neighborhoods would be overwhelmed with kids. I mean, we're talking about like 500 people showing up to a backyard party. And Vince Neil had a similar experience in his band rock candy, which is named after Montrose. So probably there's a Montrose influence there. I know Montrose was a huge influence on Van Halen and Ted Templeman and all that. Um, that's one we probably should uh, shout out to. Um, but, you know, they loved Vince Neil and Vince Neil was actually already a father. I said at 18, but I think it was even earlier that Jeff Jeff pointed out to me. Um, yeah, I think it was like 15 a, or something. It was really yeah. young, yeah. By the way, I mean, Vince Neil has been in jail more times than any member of the band. And you know, we could talk about Tommy Lee and being notorious, but Vince Neil has been in jail like something like seven or eight times and and some of those are recent. <laughs> so, I mean, he, he was kind of a badass in a way. He grew up in Compton and he was like always talking about how tough it was. I'm sure those tales were exaggerated, but maybe not. I mean, you know, uh, he did have a problematic history. Let's say that. Uh, of course, the name, as we mentioned, came from uh, came from Mick Mars, but they re- they spelled it in a way that was different, and they put umlauts over the O and the U to look more metal. So there was obviously a Motorhead influence there as well. What's funny to me is my friend Aaron, who I mentioned before, he speaks German. He grew up in Germany, and he said the way to pronounce that would be Mutli Crue. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> it just next time you think Motley Crue, I always think Mutli Crue. Um, at any rate, uh, so they... Uh, Motley Crue, they they played their first show at the Starwood in April of 81, and they were already popular. You know, they made a huge impact. They didn't sound like London. There was influences of London, but they sounded much more like a heavier band, you know, and they they got quite a following. They played the Starwood, the Roxy, uh, the Troubadour. Uh, always selling out. There were lines of kids around the block. Uh, uh, you know, Nikki Six, seeing the popularity, went back to uh, his uncle and got his uncle and another person from Capitol Records to come and see the band. And of course, his uncle was impressed by the popularity, just like he had been with London. But he said it just wasn't for them. You know, again, the record companies were not interested in this kind of music. This was before Quiet Riot kind of proved them all wrong, right? Um, but Van Halen had already proved them wrong. Yeah. You know, so it's so dumb to me. I look back and I'm just like, but listening to the first album of Too Fast for Love, it's a weird animal. You know, it didn't really sound like Van Halen. It wasn't polished. It 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 sounded like a weird hodgepodge of things as we'll get to, because I, I can kind of probably put myself in their shoes and see like how it was. But I mean, it's just weird because you see a crowd react to a band. You think this is going to do something. Twisted Sister had the same problem. Twisted Sister was selling out thousand seat venues in Long Island for for like five years, they were like the biggest local band ever and they could never get a record deal. Right. Uh, people just thought heavy rock was passe, even though it was bubble, you know, anyone who with, with, with the brain could see that in England, it was becoming a thing. Right. And, right. uh, so at any rate, um, they released their own single stick to your guns, uh, 
which, you know, and Toast of the Town, both great songs that are not, unfortunately, not on the finished product, unless you buy the the reissues that have the extra bonus tracks. Um, And uh, they they recorded a full debut album on Leather Records. Again, there's Umlauts Over the U. Uh, And they got this guy, Abby Kipper, an engineer to engineer it for them. Uh, We heard some Vince talk about how quickly it was recorded. We heard Tommy talk about how it was kind of like them not really knowing what they were doing, but giving it their all. And um, the original version has quite a bit of differences. And I think we're going to play some of that. Maybe Jeff, like you, we are, I I don't like it nearly as much. So I didn't take any clips from it, but it is interesting. And there are some good qualities about it. The one main good qualities that has stick to your guns, which is another song that has cowbell. So it would have been, perfect for the finished product and it's a great song it's really good um and i don't see why they didn't do that um but um you know the original version of come on and dance has this kind of sloppy outro you have uh the original version of livewire you know with the breaks that we heard at the beginning where he announces the band that had just this weird crowd noise they put in there i didn't i didn't like that very much but a lot of it's good like public enemy number one is almost the same but it's just the, the mix is a bit different and we'll go into that and why I think I like the Roy Thomas Baker mix more. But um, it's interesting to hear the differences. And there were all these different permutations of this album because, again, it was a private press. Uh, you know, there were a lot of bands at this time and there are some of them. Some of these albums are real collector's items, including this one. This is quite an expensive find if you want to get the original vinyl of the Leather Records release. But there are several editions of it. Right. Different variations on the cover, slight variations. Um and around this time, they somehow managed to get this guy, Tom, Tom Zutat, actually. Actually, what happened was he walked by a, a record store uh, in the a- L.A. area, and they had actually had a display for the Motley Crue album in there because it was selling so many copies as a private press. And he's like, who's this? And he managed to see them, and he was like instantly like, I've got to sign these guys. So he went back to Electra Records, and he got the same old story. Heavy rock is passe. This is not for us. And he's like, look, you've got to give me a shot at this. Like, just give me one shot. Let me sign this band because I recommended stuff like the Go-Go's to you. He recommended all these bands to Elektra that later became huge. And the one was the most notorious was the Go-Go's. And uh, the Go-Go's obviously became massive and they they poo-pooed him on it. So he's all, obviously I've been right. You guys have been wrong. So give me the shot. And of course he was right, right? Um, Elektra hired uh, veteran producer Roy Thomas Baker to clean up the mix of leather records. They thought it was too raw. Um, and I guess he sort of cleaned it up. You could argue it's still quite raw, uh, but his, his credentials are crazy. He did the cars first two albums. He did uh, Queens, uh, sheer heart attack, you know, uh, night at the opera, these classic albums. He did uh, infinity by journey, which I think is their greatest album, a departure. You know, he did a lot of great albums, um, and he remixed it. And there's this story of him inviting them over to her house. I and mean, he was doing tons of coke, but he basically had a party with Motley Crue and he ended up locking the door. And there was this, you know, they all got in, in the hot tub nude with all these girls. And Tommy Lee had some woman perform a sect act on him. And, you know, it's a very notorious story. And I guess Nikki Six had tried to escape because he had locked the door on the house so that no one could drive home drunk. Uh, which is important later. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's kind of the notorious story there. Uh, Livewire was the only si- other single besides Stick to Your Guns that Motley Crue released around this time, but there were videos for uh, a couple of the other songs. And um, the uh, album 
did okay. It was number 77. That's okay for an obscure debut. It went platinum eventually. Uh, around this time, too, uh, Motley Crue had this man, weird manager who was like this drunken, partying Vietnam vet who had sold parts of the rights to their to their uh, to their songs and and their then the band to a guy in Canada. So Motley Crue had to do this quick tour of Canada. So if you were in Canada at this time, you got the leather records version because Electra was still working on the master and they wanted something to release. Uh, to release something and they had this record. So they just re put the Electra brand on it and released it as leather record. So any Canadian fans out there who were early in the Motley Crue bandwagon heard this version, which is kind of interesting to me. Uh, you know, obviously around this time, a famous thing happened is that Nikki six, you know, Motley Crue would date uh, the members of Motley Crue would date many famous people over the years. And of course he was with Lita Ford at this time. They were a couple and there were stories of them getting into black magic. And I think this is in the dirt. I think this is all bullshit. It's all kind of like, you know, uh, trying to explain shout at the devil and the change in direction. Right. So Motley Crue, you know, in the, in the, in the inner sleeve of too fast for love, there's a picture of them and they have all these pentagrams and their skulls, but there's nothing really satanic about that. There's nothing really devil oriented about that, but it was part of their image. But for the second album, you know, it's a much darker album, subject matter wise. You know, they have this beginning in the future in uh, beginning uh, track, opening track, which is a, a spoken word called In the Beginning. We talked about how funny it was to us. And it's this post-apocalyptic kind of setting. And then they go into Shout at the Devil, which is a really heavy rock song. The original um, title of the album was supposed to be, you know, as Nikki Six was into the occult, supposedly was going to be Shout with the Devil. But the record company said, you can't do that. It's too satanic. Uh, this album was much bigger and it was much more polished. Uh, you know, we've talked about Tom Worman when we talked about our Cheap Trick episode. And Jeff did mention at that time that Shout at the Devil was the first album he produced for them. He did a great job on it. It's very slick. It sounds much more professional than Too Fast for Love. I think to this day, there is a division between camps who prefer Too Fast for Love or Shout at the Devil. Shout at the Devil probably is the most acclaimed Motley Crue album overall. And I would argue it's up, it's really close second uh, for me. It's really good all the way through. I would say the one exception is maybe 10 Seconds to Love, uh, you know, is a little bit too much like the song before it, Knock Em Dead Kid. But the worst thing they do is this terrible cover of Helter Skelter. That's yeah. never been covered well. Like the yeah. Beatles did it. And I, it's not even my favorite Beatles song, but it sounds crazy by the Beatles. It sounds like a mess. It sounds heavier than like any of these covers. By that bands have done like it's always sounds wimpy to me when it's the non-beatles you know it's just i never like that song obviously they went to the us festival we talked about the us festival in both our scorpions episode but especially our missing persons and berlin episode uh they made a huge impact there and uh yeah i think jeff you wanted to say something about about this right because yeah I, I mean one of the reasons i wanted to go to the us festival besides Van Halen, which was the main motivation, was Motley Crue. I was really into them. I wanted right. to see them. Did not see them. There were no YouTube videos or anything like that around. I did not see the Motley Crue performance till years later. When I saw it, I was aghast at how horrible it was. They sucked. Right. They, they could barely play. They sounded like shit. And I just wonder if I had seen this festival, if I would have been such a Motley Crue fan, or I would have had the same reaction that I did when I saw them on Girls, Girls, Girls. That's all. 
Yeah. Right, right. Okay, so as far as the rest of the history, I'm just going to list a few highlights. It goes, it's way too much to uh, to go into now. I think it's important to get more of the detail before we're leading up to Too Fast for Love. But since that's our focus, the rest, let's just give a few highlights and anything we want to throw in there. Uh, I highly recommend if you want to at least read a sort of accurate account of what may have happened that you read the dirt. Uh, it's really entertaining read. Um, okay. So obviously the big thing that happened next was Vince, uh, you know, got into a car accident, drunk driving, uh, with the, uh, guitarist for Hanoi rocks a guy named Razzle and Razzle ended up being killed. And two other people were driving a Volkswagen who he crashed into were brain damaged for life. Vince Neal didn't do any jail time. He basically got away with murder. Um, yeah. One conflict for me during this whole thing is I do not like Motley Crue as people. But I, you know, I have to separate the art from the artist, you know, because I do, as you will find, I love this album. Absolutely. <laughs> but I, I, you know, reading through Motley Crue, I have kind of an ambiguous relationship with them. I think we both do. Uh, Theater of Paint broke. Jeff talked a lot about that. Home Sweet Home was massive. Uh, it was their biggest selling album up to this point. Uh, they were, Nikki Six was on heroin at this time. Uh, he almost died at one point, uh, supposedly. You can read more about that in the dirt. Uh, they released Girls, Girls, Girls. Again, it's quite successful. Uh, but again, the band even themselves look back on these two albums as mixed bags because Nikki Six's songwriting was, he was almost not really there uh, because he was doing so much heroin. Uh, Dr. Feelgood, the band had all cleaned up except for Vince. Uh, Vince was still drinking sometimes, and this would be a bone of contention for the band, uh, for some time. Uh, you know, he'd been in and out of rehab. Um, uh, and, uh, they made Dr. Feelgood and the songs were a cut above what had come before the last two albums. And it was a massive success. It was a blockbuster. It had a bunch of top 10 hits, you know, without you was a huge ballad. Uh, the title cut was a huge song, uh, especially, Kickstart My Heart, I think it's probably the best song on the record. That's a notable song, a very catchy one. Um, after this, they sort of, you know, uh, were having some trouble with Vince. And I think it was because of the tour uh, he was drinking. And, you know, they had kind of become uh, a little too strict for him. He wanted to have fun. And he always insisted he was doing his job. And, you know, he was showing up on time and singing badly, you know, <laughs> as expected. Um and so the band broke up and they uh, got a new singer, John Karabi, who was a band with a band called The Screen, which is kind of a B-rate Guns N' Roses band. But they completely shifted direction. You know, they changed their songwriting style to more of a, you know, a grunge style. They were listening to Soundgarden and Alice in Change. They released a self-titled Motley Crue album. It rose quickly to nearly the top of the charts and immediately tanked because people saw that it was a, a total con um, you know, it was them trying to ape what was popular and being trendy. It's weird because I look back at a band like the Rolling Stones who did this all the fucking time, right? And they would, they, the Rolling Stones would just copy so many trends and yet they were always successful. And I think the reason is they still sounded like the Stones, even though they would do a disco song or a new wave song, you know, it still sounded like them with Motley Crue. This doesn't sound anything like Motley Crue. It sounds like a completely different band. The album has a few bits and pieces that sound okay, but it's really boring. Right. Um, Vince released exposed. Do you listen to that? I think it's a better album. You know, it's, it's pretty spotty. Um, and then he released a really weird second album after this called Carved in Stone, which I think would influence Generation Swine. It's actually produced by the Dust Brothers, who are famous for producing Beck, Odelay, and the Beastie Boys' um, second album, right? Paul's Boutique. Um, it's, a, it's like a weird art album. It's worth seeking out. Uh, it's awful, 
but it is really experimental and bizarre. So it's kind of one of those uh, kooky uh, accidents out there. Um, and then, of course, we come to the notorious, uh, the kind of one of the one of the reasons Motley Crue has staying power for me is because they just won't get out of the news. And during this time, and of course, we have the notorious Pam and Timmy's sex video, right? Yeah. Um, and of and of course, we have the, the Tommy Lee going to jail after uh, getting in a fight with Pam, domestic uh, disturbance. Uh, and uh, with that in mind, I want to read a little a bit of from the dirt, uh, just a couple of verses here. Um, one of my one of the I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of proselytize for why the dirt, dirt is so good with just a couple of verses of Tommy Lee's jailhouse poetry. So this is okay. a little treat for y'all. Yeah, but before okay. you do that. Go ahead. All right. All right. So he's writing a, a poem to Pam from jail. I remember we used to meet by a swing seat over the patio, over the piano, and you chirped each pretty word with the air of a bird. Mm. And your eyes, they were blue, green, and gray, like an April day, but lit into amethyst when I stooped and kissed. I remember I could never catch you, for no one could match you. You had wonderful, luminous, fleet, little wings on your feet. <laughs> How about that, Jeff? What do you think of Tommy Lee now? You think he's still dumb? You think his poetry, what do you think about his poetry? Does it stand the test of time? It does not. I think he's a complete moron. <laughs> I think it sounds like something like a, you know, a six-year-old would write and do a better job than Tommy Lee. That's right. What I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I think of it. I mean, the, the fact that this complete dunce of a human has any sort of, you know, mouthpiece to the larger world as a shame and a crime against humanity. Almost, right. So. Uh, yeah. And then, of course, Tommy Lee, you know, he kind of cleaned up his act for a while, but then he, you know, he's been in recent years. He got into a fight with his son and, uh, you know, and, and then, you know, I think I think that's one thing is we'll probably still see them in the news. I mean, they've been all been married multiple times and they're married to much younger women. And there's, there's you know, Nikki Six is Nikki Six is still trying to uh, pump up his legacy. Right. So they've released two other albums since then. New Tattoo, which Tommy Lee wasn't part of because he had left the band to do Methods of Mayhem. We already talked about how terrible that was. Uh, they released another album. 2008, their last uh, a new album of new material called Saints of Los Angeles. It is horrible. I think it's their worst album. I think it's worse than Generation Swine or the Motley Crue self-titled. New Tattoo is bad, but it's them trying to go back to the 80s. It's just not very distinguished. And I think, uh, you know, it's Randy Castillo does a serviceable job. Um, and then, of course, as I mentioned, Nikki Six is all about trying to reframe his legacy. And I think that's part of the significance of why we're covering Too Fast for Love. He wrote two books since uh, The Dirt. He wrote Heroin Diaries, uh, which is all about his heroin uh, thing. And he even recorded an album about it, um, you know, uh, to try to kind of glamorize maybe his his heroin past. And then he wrote an out, a book I really like called The First 21, which, again, I'm not sure I buy all of the stories. But it does talk a lot about the history of Sister. And he finally, because I was upset that he didn't give credit to Blackie Lawless in the dirt because he owes so much to him. But he does give him a lot of credit in this first 21. And he's got a song about the first 21 with his band 6AM as well. So, you know, it's it's um, a lot of this is about him trying to reframe himself as like a groundbreaking punk rock kind of guy, as opposed to just a, you know, hair metal guy. And I think 
Well, we'll talk about what we think about that in our evaluations. Uh, and last, I should mention, you know, Vince Neal has really let himself go. Uh, it's news to me that he was always this bad, you know, but it sounds like to Je- from what Jeff is saying, he was always this bad, but you could find clips on YouTube of him and there's a funny meme going around because he's let himself get really fat. Vince Neal, oh, that was kind of funny. Um, <laughs> at any rate, yeah. All right, let's, uh, as I mentioned, this is going to be epic. We still have a long way to go. Let's go into our evaluations. <laughs> okay. All right. Valuations. I, this album, as we talked about, I think is accidentally great. In a weird way, it, it reminds me, not musically at all, but sort of because accidentally great, maybe. And we'll get into this in another episode. It's like Metallica Justice for All, where it's like, this is an amazing, great album. And then the follow-ups bring into question that they actually had anything to do with it because they're so different and not of the same quality. And like the lyrics are completely 180 degrees different and just like so so weird. And, and so this album to me is one of these things where all the things we were talking about coming together at the right time in the right way made this album, uh, I think, pretty amazing. I think you, like you said, I think you hit the nail on the head, which is they tried to do something different, failed, but what they wound up with was something that was actually pretty great. And I'm going to play a couple of clips here um, and and talk about this. So the first clip I'm going to play is, of course, uh, Livewire. I think so. There you go, Live Wire. I, I think it's this weird mix of metal and punk and glam, yeah. all the stuff we're saying, and it's a great song. And when I first heard it, I go, "Well, this is really cool and different." I didn't really know what to make of it. I liked it. It was very different than the music that I was listening to at this time, as I, you know, mentioned earlier. But there's something really compelling about it. The video is sort of amusing to me. I, I don't know if I how early on I saw the video. Um, not as early as I heard the music. When I saw the video, I was like, okay, they're dressed like, you know, complete glammed out and weird, as you said, kind of like a almost satanic paraphernalia, but really other than, is this a decoration item than any sort of, you know, religious or political statement or anything like that, just kind of to be shocking. Lots of leather, lots of makeup, lots of hairspray. Um, I do want to point out to some of the lyrics here, you know, we'd be remiss without pointing out that um, there's lyrics like, uh, I'll either break her face or take down her legs, get my ways at will. Maybe some problematic lyrics in this album um, that would continue to plague the crew. I don't know if I, and the problem with Motley Crue of this era and, and to parrot what you were saying, Slip, about them not being great people, I think each one of them is a complete piece of shit as a human, I have to say. Um if you see interviews with them at the time and even later, their respect for pretty much anything is non-existent. Other humans, um, women especially, um, I, I think they just don't give a shit. And they're, they always tried to play that as that being kind of like a feather in their cap 
in something to be lauded that they don't give a shit in a rock and roll sense. Yeah. I don't think it's something to be lauded. I think that the fact that they, this album is so great was because it captured something real and raw and truthful about them at that moment over those maybe four or five days when they recorded it and maybe the couple of months that preceded it when they were writing these songs. But that was about the last piece of genuineness that the crew had maybe outside of some of the shout sessions. And the rest of it was the corporate rock thing and them just trying to be rock stars, which I'll get to in a minute. I'm going to talk a lot more about this song in my evaluation, but I just want to echo, I agree 100% with what you say, but something you hit on that I didn't think about is I think that there is something less genuine about Shout Out the Devil than this record. Like this to me is genuine. And I also will say the lyrics on this record are absolutely awful. They They are awful to the point of being entertaining. Yeah, like they are ridiculous. I mean, there's a kind of poetry to them. Maybe even, uh, you know, I would say that, you know, maybe even Tommy Lee, maybe Tommy Lee had a hand in some of these, judging from how the quality of the lyric writing, you know, they're that ridiculous. They're they're ludicrous, but it's fun. It's funny as hell and entertaining. And I love it. And it captures something genuine about them. You know, they're really trying. He's trying to write cool lyrics. You know, he's trying to be edgy and cool. And it's goofy as all hell, but I just love it. I have such affection for it. And I think everything else Jeff said about this song and the difference, I just echo completely. And I'll say a little more about it later because this song is such a standout track in their history. It, it, do, it needs to be talked about by both of us. So I'll, move, I'll let you move on. Okay. Um, the next song I want to talk about here is Public Enemy number one. Let me play a little clip of this. So the little tagline there, don't think about nothing, should this be sort of the motto of Motley Crue? Because they generally don't think about nothing because there's nothing in their fucking heads for the most part. I do want to read some lyrics, though, maybe a little ironic here. Um, Not what I played. It's uh, tragedy running the red light. Hear the screams. Another one dies tonight. Don't think about nothing. I I wonder if Vince has ever stopped to think about those lyrics. Dude, I didn't stop to think about those. That's amazing. What a find. That's Um, crazy, dude. He he lived it. He lived lived it. it. Oh, my God. Maybe Lizzie is the one who, uh, Lizzie Gray is the one who wrote this. But I wonder if Vincent ever said, you know, remember that song I used to sing or about running red lights? And like, I, I don't know. I was just. You know, well, you know what he when he took Razzle out, the liquor store was within walking distance. He didn't yeah. need to drive, but he wanted to show off his heart, his hot rod. And he was just going like 95 miles per hour and showing off. And that's what killed him, killed Razzle and gave brain damage to two people forever. You know, he yeah. obviously had to pay them a huge settlement. But yeah, it's it's that this lyric captures that actual event. Yeah, it, but it's, it, it prefigures it. it it's like looking into the future. That is so crazy. Yeah. Um, In the worst possible way, of course. The next song I want to talk about is actually one of my favorite Motley Crue songs of all time. Many of these are actually, but called Take Me to the Top. 
mean, it's a simple song musically in some ways. I know you'll talk about some, there's complex aspects of it. I just find it hard to believe that Nikki wrote some of these songs. Um, yeah, but, just based on what they would do later, right? It's, yeah. it's like, it has, this song has a lot of, I mean, I'll just cut to the chase. This song has a lot of parts. Right. Yeah. It's got these transitions and the transitions are wonderfully awkward. You know, they're, yeah, yeah. they're so, they're so jarring, but at the same time, it's like, it's heavy, you know, and, and it's, it's like just to think of all these parts and put them together. And I'd sorry, I would argue the song too fast for love is similar. There's most of the songs on this album have that aspect to them. You know, there, there's a complexity in that, that is not, you know, like you look at something like too young to fall in love. It's very, it's great, but it's straight ahead. There's not many changes but like this album, it's even Public Enemy number one, that that intro versus the chorus versus yeah. the kind of verse, they're all jarringly different. They almost sound like pieces of different songs. And this be. one's the most complicated on the album. Yeah. But the, you know, it's simple, maybe the because you listen to the bass line, it's got this subtle change to it, but it's very, you know, his bass lines are just like do, 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 do. You know, he's very yeah, eight notes, barely. But uh, yeah, uh, it's it's uh it's it's simple in the in the effect that it's direct, but there is all these changes too. So I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, I, I think maybe it's not by design; it's by accident. I, I just yeah. it, you know um, the the other song I want to play. You mentioned the leather version of a song, so this is this is from that era. So I'm going right. to play a song called "Too Fast for Love." When So many people may not uh, realize that that was the uh, original opening uh, of that song. Uh, and uh, Vince's, uh, you know, vocal highlights there, um, you know, showing off his uh, five note range uh, there on that song and not quite hitting those uh, high notes. Um, I want to read a uh, few of the lyrics here for this song and maybe discuss some of them. So living on a jet, making love to someone else's dreams. Say it again. She puts her legs up. Well, calls it good luck. Do you know what I mean? And, you know, I, I don't really delve into the depths of the lyrics of this particular song or, frankly, too many Motley Crue songs. But I was sort of wondering if this is about, like, um, a high-priced call girl. Is Other lyrics in this song are, uh, she's a streamlined queen on a sex-crazed movie screen. Say it again. She'll use her time up and have nothing to show. Is this about, like... Uh, you know, uh, I mean, she's a porn actress. Um, you know, they know a lot about that world. Maybe it's something about they're portending their time with strippers and, and so forth. I don't know. I, I, I maybe shouldn't wonder too much about these lyrics, but I don't know if you thought about them at all. Well, too fast for love. I think it's she's too fast for love. But my first thought when I thought of too fast for love and then 10 seconds to love yeah. shot in the devil, it's like, Motley crew hate women so much that they don't even want to give them pleasure. They just yeah. want to rush through it. You know, so yeah. even though I know that too fast for love is like, but yeah, it's like, she's too fast for love. Like she's 
a, you know, a slut or, or something. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, there's a lot of misogyny on these records as well. As we'll I discuss. also think that Nikki might have some right. problems with hang time as it were. Yeah. The other, the other thing uh, about it, the last part of the lyrics uh, at the end of the day, you're my farmer to be basically saying, you know, whoever this is going to wash out of being a sex worker. Um, right. I'm, I'm sure Motley Crue has seen the whole, uh, cycle gamut of many uh, uh young right. ladies who have watched out of the porn and stripper industries uh, right. after motley stopped supporting them with hundred dollar bills and making it rain um you know the sound of this album the production quality varies you know when you go from these early early versions to the later ones none of it's great but again i think it's some of their uh some of the greatness of it is it's a lot of accidental stuff it just happens to work right um the cowbell we've talked about I want to just play a few more, um, you know, clips here and uh, move on. Uh, we talked about the song Stick to Your Gun, so I want to play that. Now, is that hitting, is that Tommy, is that a cowbell or a gong? Or is that Tommy hitting the cowbell with his hogs so hard? That yeah, it sounds yeah, like exactly, exactly. I, it's, yeah, exactly. I, I, I'm not sure. It's kind of an amusing song. And lastly, I did want to play this, which is um, maybe, you know, my attempt at mimicking a great hero of mine by the name of Bill McClintock, who does mm-hmm. these uh, great mashups. Oh uh, yeah! On the internet, you should check out his YouTube channel. He does. He gets some attention, but it's so great that he should get even more attention. He should be the most popular thing on YouTube. He should like, be because his look, PewDiePie are, and all these yeah, terrible things. It's like course. he is the best thing on YouTube. He's Go to an Bill McClintock's YouTube channel. Right. Watch his mashups are genius. Right. Um, everyone is great. Some of them are just amazing. But you know, the Motley Crue cover of of the Raspberry songs tonight, it was reminding me their style on some of these songs, maybe even evocative on the alternate intro to Too Fast for Love reminded me of something. I couldn't quite figure it out, so uh, forgive my attempt here, but I want to play you that song tonight, um, maybe matched up with something that is a unnamed uh, influence. You did not name Slip in your, in your, your uh, uh, history All right, part. let's hear Let's hear So tell I me love... if you recognize this influence. Are you ready All right, here? cool. Yeah. All right. What do you think? Yeah, that's that's actually a good good. I mean, if you think about it, the raspberries aren't too far removed from uh, <laughs> from the Bay City Rollers, but yeah, I actually think that the Bay City Rollers, their biggest influence is Poison. Like yeah. Poison doesn't sound anything removed. Like Motley Crue, you could argue they're a heavier version of that, right? Like Public Enemy Number One has kind of the oh yeah, you know, yeah. it's kind of that sing songy pot. But with Poison, there's no separation. Like they're not any heavier than the base. Actually, I could argue the Bay City Rollers might be heavier yeah. than than uh, than Poison. Um, but yeah, that's pretty good, dude. That's pretty funny. 
So um, just wrapping up here, you know, I could go on and on and on, which this episode already is. Um, I just want to kind of call out the, the band and the musicians for the most part versus them as rock stars. As musicians, they range from decent in Mick Mars and, and Tommy Lee um, to completely incompetent, you know, as musicians, Nikki Six, um, to the degree that he wrote any of these great riffs, which I still hard to believe. Um, I kind of think that Bob Deal wrote most of them, but I don't know. He's a he's a worse bassist than Gene Simmons, and you already heard me talk about that. Darby Crash looks down on Nicky as a musician. <laughs> um, he plays That's the funny. simplest things possible. He hasn't learned anything in 40 years. There's that famous story where he stole a, a, a guitar and tried to play bass on it. He didn't know the Right, difference. he didn't even know what it was, right? Yeah. That's his early years, yeah. Yeah, I don't think he's learned much um, between now and then. Um, Tommy Lee, you know, we could talk about him as a drummer. He plays fairly simple beats, though not a lot of time changes or anything like that. And Nicky can't really live. He couldn't even keep up with that. He's just a use, completely useless as a bassist. I don't. I looked for videos recently, like 6 a.m., to see if he's any better, and he's not. He's just terrible. His lyrics, we already talked about it being just ridiculous, um, awful. Vince Neil, you, you talked about uh, in the kind of videos that... Uh, are on the internet uh recently he can't sing at all i think he's probably the worst singer ever to front a successful rock band i i do want to talk about how in the opening clip nikki talking about all the things that were great about nick as a uh, vince as a singer vince. not one of them had anything to do with his ability to sing was, <laughs> yeah that's true he, he did not that's mention true. once about his ability to sing because he has no ability to sing he's a shitty fucking singer that just happened right. to work for these limited range things on this album and shout and things like that. But live, he's always been a disaster. And he, and part of it is not that he is not talented. He is not talented. The other part is he doesn't give a shit. And he's never tried to take right. it, you know, seriously as a singer. He's never tried to learn to sing with his limited talent. He just doesn't give a shit. And frankly, what he's doing now and people are paying money for is a fucking embarrassment. It's just him like you know, screeching out not even intelligible words of lyrics. It's just a joke. And and I just think he's an awful human being in every way. If you read The Dirt, you're not going to come away with a different opinion than that, probably. No. Um, and, you know, he got away with murder. He paid off, you know, millions of dollars to get away with murder. I just have zero respect for him. I can see that he was compelling as a rock star, which I'll talk about in a second, or that he got a lot of girls because he was a, it was, he was a good-looking guy um, early on, although some of those girls like your friend Maureen there who may have a crush on him, I wonder what they think of him now, and maybe they want <laughs> Yeah! <laughs> I get the last laugh. Yeah. They wanna, they, <laughs> I still you know, don't get the last laugh. He, Vince Neil, women still like the, I, them. I guess. You know, it's like, it's it's once you become famous and, and you become a rock star and you have that high profile, it's kind of like, you know, you're you're kind of living off your legend, you know. I guess. Well, he's um, living yeah, off of in a way, I kind of get the right? last laugh. I think I get the last laugh. There. You do. I mean, she's yeah. probably wondering if she could unmasturbate to that. You know, <laughs> <laughs> probably not. Um, yeah, Vince Neil, uh, Mick Mars. I think certainly is the most talented musician of the band. I, he's a limited but decent guitarist. He played those simple riffs well. Um, he clearly had a lot of experience uh, before he joined Motley Crue and playing kind of bar band riffs. And it was obvious. I think he's always been pretty decent for what he does. And I kind of have a grudging respect for him because he's not trying to ever do something that beyond what he is able to and did what he could well. And, you know, 
relatively speaking, the most decent human of the band, I, th- I think, in a lot of ways, which maybe isn't necessarily saying much. I will point right. out that that was him talking about his favorite fish at the beginning opening. Uh, oh, so yeah, maybe he's pretty not, awful. You know, any yeah. kind of paragon of humanity there. Um, Tommy Lee, we talked about, you know, it's completely stupid, short bus kind of guy. As a drummer, I used to be more impressed by him than I, you know, when I was younger. I don't, I mean, he's he's a decent drummer, but he really does not have any elan or sophistication or interesting timing or he plays loud and hard and keeps decent time. Um, and that's not bad. I mean, look, uh, ACDC's drummers have done that for, you know, decades and it it works. I think it works for Motley Crue's music, but I'm not overly impressed by him um, as a drummer. He was able to play upside down pretty well on that tour, which is maybe an impressive thing. I think his most impressive feats have to do with his uh, off the stage sort of drumming. <laughs> <up the world. laughs> um, okay, so I, I quickly want to talk about them as rock stars versus musicians. As rock stars, there's no doubt that they are legendary. There's no question. Maybe only second to Led Zeppelin. And, you know, like that's where the comparisons were, where Zeppelin end uh, in almost every other way. Um, their partying was legendary. Their notoriety was legendary. Their drug use was legendary. All that kind of stuff. You talked about the, you know, the sex tape stuff and all the reality show stuff. All of it's ridiculous. Um, you know, Tommy's dong and the fascination that has held, I guess, in public uh, discourse, as it were. The fact that that Pam and Tommy show that I've never seen, there's a, a, some episode, like at least a yeah, half yeah, a dozen Yeah, yeah, it's people. early on. Yeah, I watched the whole thing. Did you? There's that <laughs> yeah, scene, yeah. I guess, where he's talking to his dick and his dick is talking back to him. I, I didn't necessarily. I will say the acting in that is absolutely incredible. Like yeah. both both of them are really good. And uh, Sebastian Stan like kind of nails uh, the whole innocent, you know, lunkhead, uh, you know, but also, you know, uh, kind of a, a childish brute, you know, that, yeah. that Tommy Lee is, you know, he just nails it anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, as rock stars are legendary, as celebrities are legendary, I think a lot of their, they certainly had a charm and charisma. Um, there's no doubt about that. And I think that's really their appeal. Um, the larger context of Motley Crue here wrapping up is, you know, for, uh, hard partying drug addicts, idiots, really out for a good time and not much else and not really caring about anything other than that, shows in their later work. I think this album represents the absolute height. And I'll continue, like, I'll say that the Shout stuff is probably of this time. So those first two albums lumped together represents their height, almost accidental, whatever they had that was captured there. So congratulations for them for doing that. But ever since that, it's just, been a long downhill run and it's just them being their true selves over time you know idiotic drug addicts who don't give a shit about anything other than themselves um and you know long term i think in an evaluation kind of way looking at this album and again those songs maybe lumping in shout in this time frame i'm long on the album and those songs are undeniably great but for Motley Crue overall as an entity long-term, totally short on Motley Crue. I think they will be a joke, you know, just like, oh, you mean the, those, uh, you know, sexist drug addict, you know, idiots, you know, video that exist of them. But musically, these albums have something. And there's some great songs there. And I think that those will endure, but maybe less so without the Motley Crue hype. But I do think there's something to those songs 
on those two albums um, that I am long on. And I have to say, even though personally, you pretty clear where I come down on them is is humans and, and all that, I think similar to you. So that's where I'll leave it. Um, and I'll, I'll turn it over to you. All right. So I've been waiting for this moment because this out, this is like one of those episodes where I've been wrestling with myself about what to say about this album. Uh, it's baffling to me why I love this album so much. Uh, I think it's a lot of what Jeff said, and I'll say a few more things. Uh, I could, for instance, I have always thought I could write the craziest, most insane college thesis on why this album is a masterpiece to me. Um, and I forgot to mention something in my history. You know, I it was recent. It was a few years ago. I had met this guy named Tommy. He's a friend of my friend Bob's. And he's one of these guys who's like, you know, he's he just knows a lot about music and stuff. And he's kind of a metal, more of a metal and AOR guy. And when I brought up this album, he just said, nope, that's. Shout out the devil's way better. He's all the only good songs on that are Livewire and and Piece of Your Action. And he would just not listen to me. Like, I'm like, dude, what about Take Me to the Top? What about Public Enemy Number One? What about Starry Eyes? These are great songs, you know, and, and the album is great. And I tried to go into why I think it's great. And he just shut me down. And I think that's a true of a lot of classic metal heads. But because Shout at the Devil is much more like almost like borderline Judas Priest. He's in the song Red Hot. It's the other contender with Livewire for the heaviest song by the band. It's straight up metal. It could be on Screaming for Vengeance if the vocals were better, right? But uh, but basically, you know, I think a lot of that's the, the kind of contention between these two albums. But to me, this album is, it stands out. Shout at the Devil is kind of, you know, it's a good album of that era and it fits into that era perfectly. But this, there's never been an album that sounded like this before this album. And there's never been an album that sounded like this after this album. It stands alone. This was an album that's kind of its own fucking genre, you know, because it it kind of showed the influences of that 70s glam with heavy metal. And it and it's got a punkiness to it and a rawness to it that's all thrown together in a blender. And I'll talk a little more about the, the individual contributions of each member and why it came. It's just this weird hodgepodge that's that ultimately ended to be what I think is great. Um, one of the things this about this album is it is a showcase, right? To me, this album, every one of these songs is about showing off live, right? That's why the songs are so elaborate. That's why Tommy Lee overplays the drums like crazy on this album. We listen to some of the clips Jeff played, right? Take me to the top, right? There's the, you, you hear the drums are like an echoey, booming drums. You know, a, a lot of this is about Roy Thomas Baker's mix, and I'll talk about that. But they're so over loud. They're so over busy, right? I mean, you kind of talked about him with ACDC. I think that's true to in the later Motley Crue. But in the early Motley Crue, he is very flashy, right? He's going all over the drums. There's extra fills. He's opening and closing the hi-hat. He's hitting the bass drum on every fucking note. He's doing these bass drum fills. They're they're technical, but they're sloppy, right? He's very sloppy. He's all he's like kind of rambling. It's almost like Keith Moon or something. Like he's overplaying the shit out of these drums. Yeah. And and the bass, the Nikki Six's bass. I guess I'll be talking about the contributions now, right? He's got this, he plays very civil bass level, levels, but his, I think one reason metal guys don't like this album is it almost sounds like a disco bass. You know, he's like, he's like, he does this thing all the time where he goes, nee, 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 and it's yeah. like, it, to me, it sounds like pure disco, right? It just doesn't fit. 
it's not hard rock bass, right? So you have this booming, overplaying drummer filling every space, all the space with drums and cymbals. You've got this bass player who can barely play. You know, he's got a few nice little changes, but mostly it's straight kind of uh, monotone bass lines with a few little flourishes, disco flourishes. And then you've got this singer who's like squealing. You know, he's like a shrill, squealing little girl. And he kind of sounds like even a Too Fast for Love where he's like, Too Fast for Love. It's like Benny Boop. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it sounds he sounds so much higher pitched. It's almost like they sped up his vocals. It's like a cartoon voice in some ways. Right. And then you've got this guitarist. And I'll tell you the best the best quote I found about this guitar, because I was trying to capture this because I think the guitar tone on this album is my favorite guitar tone on any album ever. This is the raunchiest dirtiest, nastiest sounding guitar I've ever heard. It is the punk element of this. He is the savior of this record. He's the what holds it all together, right? It is obnoxious in your face. Uh, I'll be playing some clips where you can hear that. And you heard some of it on Jeff's like Livewire, the guitar is just pure metal. It's heavy as, as fuck. But it's got this reverb on it. It's often too loud. I, I often argue that Roy Thomas Baker, when he was remixing this album, he, you know, he, he was going down to get another bump bump of cocaine and he accidentally bumped up the levels because the guitar <laughs> sound just goes loud randomly right yeah. it's like the guitar solo is all of a sudden like 10 times louder than the rest and the drums go up in volume so it's like he's doing his coke and accidentally hitting up the levels at various times <laughs> right That's it's funny. like it's so ridiculous um but someone described this you know i there's a lot of love for this album on YouTube now, especially after the dirt, the, the movie, the one good thing about the movie soundtrack is it features a lot of this era and um, people have rediscovered it because of that. And I think it's risen in reputation because of that, as I'll talk about, but one guy just said, he's all, he's all this guitar. There's something I don't like about it, but I also like about it. It sounds cheap. That's right. This guitar sounds cheap. You know, and I'm like, yeah. that's awesome. And to me, that's a compliment because it's yeah. raw as fuck. Like it's a raw as fucking guitar sound. Awkwardness is everywhere. Jeff played the songs Too Fast for Love and Take Me to the Top. They've got all of these transitions, right? We talked about how they're simple in a way because they're not, you know, maybe they're not hard to play. I don't know. You know, some of Tommy Lee's stuff is all over the place. So who knows? But but it's like they're they're direct, they're raw. Maybe that's that's the simplicity, but they're complicated and they have all these changes. And the changes are just so awkward. Like the chorus of Too Fast for Love kind of comes out of nowhere. And that 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 early one was even worse, right? Because you played the version from Leather Records that has that weird soft intro that just doesn't go with the rest of the song at yeah. all, right? And um, you know, it's it, but there's background vocals. I love the background vocals. The background vocals are pure glam, it's like and pop, like oh. Yeah, you know, some of the some of the vocals are almost like girl group level. Yeah, you know, they're like, um, and then there's like uh, you know, the background vocals on Livewire that on the chorus that you played that are one of my favorite things about that song where they say, I'm alive. And and then there's this whole bit at the end where that just keeps repeating with this kind of spidery guitar. It just rules, it's just absolutely awesome. You know, I can't say anything more about it. To me, the album seemed dated, as I mentioned, and also something new right so it's like you look at that album and you see motley Crue with the umlauts and it's just so stupid looking that logo i mean it's just so dumb and then you have the cover which is just a ripoff of the rolling stone sticky fingers it's almost like an homage but really like they almost just like were like let's just do something like that like it was kind of just lazily thrown together right um the influences on this album again 
the hodgepodge it's just baffling to me there's like a missing band somewhere that i don't understand what they're hearing because again even though you can trace a lot of the stuff the glam rock it still sounds different and unique in a way that i just can't put the pieces together it sounds like pieces put together right as we mentioned it sounds like different influences coming together in a mix that doesn't make any sense at all but somehow comes out working like we talked about right uh, one influence I mentioned was Joey Kramer of Aerosmith. I think Joey Kramer is one of these drummers who's just often not talked about. He's really underrated. Um, he does some great stuff on Sweet Emotion, and he does this song called Nobody's Fault. I mean, I'll, we'll talk about Aerosmith Rocks at some point. It's one of my all-time favorite rock albums. And um, it's an album that sounds a lot better than this. It's a, a kind of a classic of hard rock engineering. It's just a masterpiece of production. But the song Nobody's Fault... Um, you know, Joey Kramer is just playing this hi-hat. He's just letting it go up and down throughout the whole song. It's kind of this chugging train-like riff, which is very similar to Black Back in the Saddle. His drums on Back in the Saddle, I have no idea where that comes from. That song is such a weird, heavy song that sounds like nothing else. That song, I think, influenced a lot of the sound on this album, as did the rest of that album. Um, and then again, I mentioned, I already mentioned Roy Thomas Baker and how he just, uh, on the leather records, you can hear a lot of the basics sound the same, but everything is cranked to the max on this album. The, the, the instruments bleed into each other like nothing you've ever heard. It sounds like an absolute freaking mess, but it makes the album sound heavier. And I love that, you know, because again, it's got that, I love glam. I love Sweet. I love all those bands. I love T-Rex. I could never understand why T-Rex was an influence on the 80s because they don't sound like that at all, except maybe to the new wave bands of the 80s. Um, more than the, the rock bands, but they were a rock band and they had the image, right? The glam image. But I hear in this album, I hear all that, but it's just been done in a way that just doesn't sound like anything else. Um, again, with Shout Out the Devil, I I listen to that and I wrestle with it because I like all of it except for Helter Skelter. I don't think there's a bad song on it. Uh, again, I have qualms with 10 Seconds to Love because it follows Knock 'em Dead Kid and it's almost the same song. It's it's indistinguishable. And the album kind of drags for me toward the end. Danger is a song that kind of is a weird one. It could appear on this album, so I kind of have some affection from it, but I just don't like it as many, much like as any either, song on this yeah. record. Uh, but it's got like that. Its lyrics are more like this. They're more about, you know, the lyrics on this album are a lot about becoming a rock star and rock stardom and life in Hollywood and on the streets and rough and scrabble band trying to make it to the big time. They're, they're about themselves. Right. Yeah. And that's another thing I like more where shout at the devil, you know, I don't believe the occult thing. I think it was just a play because, you know, stuff like Dio and Sabbath with Dio Sabbath and, and Iron Maiden, you know, number of the beast was out. And I think they were just trying to jump on a trend. Yeah. It was a this cynical- album is, Thing, yeah, it's yeah. a cynical cash grab, even though yeah. they execute it perfectly. And it's a fantastic song. You know, I can't yeah. fault it. Um, and again, I love Too Young to Fall in Love, I think is almost a pop song. It would fit on this album in that vein, but it's not, it doesn't have the different parts. It's much more straightforward. And as Jeff alluded to, the video is an absolute masterwork. It is such, it's like a Kung Fu movie, but with Motley Crue as these weird antagonists who like, uh, like mess with the people of this, like, Chinese town. It is awesome. It's and it's directed in this really dark way. It's so funny, but it's also so good. Looks that kill might be their best song ever. Again, it's not my favorite. I've already told you what my favorite is. I'm going to talk more about it, but it's looks that kill is a perfect song. It's a perfect hard rock metal song. I can't think of anything that fits in between that hard rock metal and glam 
hair metal song, including Guns N' Roses, that rivals this song in my mind. I think it's a perfect song. And I think Vince is amazing on that song. You know, maybe Tom Worman did something to his vocals. Because again, we know that live, he, you know, we've seen the Us Festival. We've seen these shows. Not as good, right? Uh, okay, just a brief shout out to Livewire. I mentioned why I like it so much. Again, I think it's the heaviest song they ever did. The only other contender is Red Hot, which is a really good song, album track from Shout at the Devil. Um, I think uh, it's, it could be the band's best song too. It's a contender. Uh, it's it's absolutely perfect. And I think even the metalheads who don't like this album as much for the quirky stuff like Merry Go Round and Public Enemy Number One all like this song. Everyone agrees this is one of the best Motley Crue songs. Um, Come On and Dance, I will be playing a little bit in it shortly. But again, it's raunchy, nasty. The guitar sound is absolutely filthy, rotten metal uh, that I don't think was ever repeated on an album. When I think about the guitar sound on this album, I think about a couple of albums. Um, uh, I didn't mention what I thought about Born to Run. I'll get to that in a minute um, because Born to Run is another album. I I have the weird comparisons between these two, though they couldn't be more different. Um, but I want to compare this to, a, a, a you know, as far as the um, guitar tone, there are a few albums where the guitar sound is unique and really stands out. One is an album that couldn't be farther removed from this, which is an album by the Pixies called Surfer Rosa. It was produced by Steve Albini. It has this absolutely savage and nasty guitar sound that no other album by that band, and I'm a fan of that band, I like their first few albums, no other album by that band sounds as nasty and just raunchy as that guitar sound. It's one of my favorite guitar albums, and this is probably my favorite guitar album, even though I don't think it's the best guitar playing by any means. You know, I mean, when I think of technical guitar albums, there are ones that I like more, like Fair Warning by Van Halen or something like that. But just the guitar sound, the tone, it's got to be my favorite. And and even though technical, technically the playing, even though I love everything Nick Mars does on this record, it's you know yeah, obviously there there are different. I, I'm gonna qualify it. There are different kinds of guitar, right? And I love the guitar on you know Hearts, uh, Dreambone Annie because I love all the acoustic guitar, right? I love the uh, guitar playing on the Pentangle, a folk band there because the acoustic guitar. But as far as like heavy, dirty, glam rock, raunchy guitar. This album is up there on my list of favorite guitar albums. Um, the lyrics, as Jeff mentioned, are absolutely ridiculous on this. We'll talk about those after I play the clip. Um, it's also has Jeff played a bunch of cowbell from different songs, but the one where that you heard uh, the cowbell that's ridiculous, you might as well play it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is part of the bridge in the song, like kind of a break where that repeats over and over again, that it's like a cowbell concerto. You know, it's just presented for your enjoyment. It is the most, I think it might be the most cowbell ever used in a song, other than someone doing an album of all cowbell. Um, at any rate, let's play uh, the opening to this song. Okay, so 
let's talk about the the elephant in the room. We'll talk about more of the lyrics first, but what the fuck? Electric love, like Sandra D. I remember reading this when I was in eighth grade going, what the fuck? Gidget? <laughs> <laughs> like, how yeah. does Gidget have electric love? Yeah, like, it know. makes no sense. Or she's got a Pepsi sheen. I mean, I think that's like influenced by the nonsense lyrics of something like T-Rex. Yeah. But it's supposed to just have a sound or whatever. But just think about that opening. I mean, it is so hardcore that that guitar sounds like a motorcycle revving up. It is just so awesome. And I love the transition to come on and dance. I also love the absolute shrieking vocals of this song. I mean, again, this is my favorite song. It, it's got an iconic cowboy use. I mean, obviously, we know stuff like... Uh, you know, Blue Easter Cold and Mississippi Queen are great, but this is my favorite use of cowbell ever because it's so ludicrous. I gotta um, have more and, cowbell. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and and then we some of the lyrics we have here. Uh, in a Pepsi sheen, she's a leather tease. She's on top. Well, she can't be stopped. Watch her scream. Watch her suck you clean. Yeah. Gross. I feel like I want to take a fucking shower. It's so gross. Um, yeah, it's really gross. And again, I met my wife. It was a very romantic moment while we listened to this song together and listened Very. to those lyrics. Um, of course, I was laughing at them at the time, but I was also realizing at the time, like, wait, this is actually great. And I love this song and it's a magical moment for me in my life, blah, blah, blah. So that song's really important to me. And again, I would encourage everyone to go out and listen to this album and become converts like us. Okay, next. Uh, I'm just going to briefly mention Public Enemy number one. To me, again, I mentioned the New York Dolls. Now, the New York Dolls were always trumped up as this raunchy, proto-punk, glam-punk. They were glam-punk band. They were so important, blah, blah, blah. I get that. I get the influence. But to me, Public Enemy number one is what that band should have been playing. That, to me, is this, to me, is the raunchiest, heaviest glam song. Jeff already played a clip, so I'm not going to play it again. I just wanted to give a shout-out to it because I love it so much. Okay, now we're going to talk about kind of the dark horse song on the album. This is by far the goofiest song a Motley Crue probably ever did, even, well, maybe their cover of Jailhouse Rock. I don't know, but it's damn goofy. It's kind of a ballad, but I will, but it's a ballad that's got dynamics and changes. As we mentioned, there are complex changes in these songs. They're very awkward. They don't fit together, but they do at the same time. Um, and it's, it's a ballad, but I'll, you know, and it's goofy, but I think it's a better written song. And I think it's much catchier than either Home Sweet Home or Without You, which were the two big ballads. Uh, we're going to play a few parts of the song so you can kind of get a sense of how the changes are and why I like it so much. Because if I just played the opening, you'd be like, what the hell? This is a piece of shit. Uh, let's play the opening, a bit of the opening song. <laughs> Yeah, you can hear how goofy it sounds, right? And what the yeah. fuck, Mary go round and round? What kind of a hard rock song is this? I don't right? know. It's it's so stupid. And it, this was, believe me, this was the holdout. This and On With The Show, which I'll talk about. These are the two songs I didn't like for a long time. But I've eventually come around. Okay, now let's listen to the chorus uh, that's a little more rocking. So you can hear, I mean, it's so weird sounding, right? Because the, it's almost syncopated. 
you know, it's kind of stop and start in this jerky drums and guitar. And it's it's heavy, right? It's actually heavy. So it's it, you have that first thing that sounds like it's from a completely different song, and then you go into this. And then I'm going to talk about the solo. So this is one of these really loud solos I talked about where RTB was snorting coke and bumped up the volume. Let's listen to this. I love the backup guitar too, the overdub guitar where it's just like, and he's just playing this crazy solo. I mean, these three parts don't sound like they go in the same song at all. And it's, it's really kind of a jarring song and it's a weird song. I mean, it's like, it's trying to be something, you know, it's trying to be some kind of classic song with all these movements and it's just goofy as all hell. It's ridiculous, but I just love it. You know, I just love it. I find I find it really catchy and memorable. And I love the uh, the way the guitars interact on that solo, the, the accompaniment. Um, Jeff mentioned Take Me to the Top. Again, this is a total standout on this record. This to me, this is a live standout. Like they must again, these show these songs are about showing off. They're about doing all of this elaborate stuff, all of these parts to kind of showcase their live show. It's it's very flashy and take me to the top is that in spades. Right. But it's also heavy as shit. You know, it's got that part where it's like, with that flanged out guitar. This is so heavy. Um, you know, and it's almost proggy, you know, it's weird because, because it just transitions so much, but the transitions are strange. Yeah. You know, hemispheres though, you know, no, I mean, hemispheres is like, hemispheres has transitions but they all make sense yeah, musically. it's like a masterpiece right <laughs> i mean rush could do that they could they could take a song and even make a pop song like limelight which is in a different time and make yeah. it catchy and complex but this is catchy but it's complex but it's like awkward and f- stumbling they stumble into a magic greatness is what yeah. they do yeah. and they're tripping over themselves and making a masterpiece in the process um, okay, I'm just I'm I'm gonna play a little bit of this in a minute, but I got a shout out to Piece of Your Action because this is the other song that true metalheads who don't like this album but like Shout at the Devil always cite. Um, this is a direct influence from the band Sweet uh, because they talk about Sweet has a song called Action that goes Everybody Wants a Piece of the Action, which is a great rock song from uh, one of their uh, albums with Brian Connolly. Um, I also think this could fit into Shout on the Devil, but again. It's got this crazy echo chamber, like overly loud in the red production by Roy Thomas Baker, uh, not the clean kind of professional production of Tom Worman. And it, it, otherwise, as a song, it would fit in here perfectly. Um, but it, it really rocks. Let's play a little bit of it here. I love that break. That's that reminds me a lot of the later song Kickstart My Heart. It's got that kind of motorcycle revving. And then the you can really hear that ride single ping, ride yeah. sim, ride symbol ping. I mean, it's so overly loud, but it adds it makes it heavy and it's like weird and open sounding, like echoey, like every instrument is like kind of vying for the space in the room. And it's yeah. like it, it is so not how to produce a hit record. You know, it's just it's just but it to me, it makes it heavier and rawer that way. And I think it rocks. Uh, you know, it's a great song. It's one of the standouts. 
Um, of course, as Jeff is going to point out here, some of the lyrics are are equally uh, problematic <laughs> or, or great. Uh, yeah. Or funny, right? Yeah. Like, I, I mean, this just falls into the ridiculous, over-the-top funny thing, but some of the lyrics on this song are tight action, rear traction, <laughs> so hot you really blow me away, fast-moving, wet and ready, Ew. time is right, so hang on tight. Um, Gross. Rear traction was fucking rear traction, dude. <laughs> yeah, rear traction. At first, Jeff was joking. He's like, I just want to call this episode rear traction. I I'm do. like, I don't think people will know what it is, you know, but it's like, that's yeah. for the true fans. Well, listener, I actually wanted to call this episode rear traction. There you go. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, th- there you go. More of their lyric, accidental lyric greatness, uh, maybe not in the most positive way okay i'm going to go to another deep cut on the album starry eyes so uh let's play the opening to starry eyes about that lyric she'll hold you like a man's supposed to be held so this is the tender side of motley Crue. Oh i love God. the way vince sings this like she'll hold you like a man's supposed to be held <laughs> like he wrenches all the all the gentleness yeah. out of it you know he's just like really yeah. sincere you know yeah. but you know this song is so badass to me like this is another one that took me a while to really get into but i love the opening guitar how it just hangs there it's so dark and the weird kind of symbols that you know bring it in and it's just like you know it just kind of it's 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 kind of got minor key sounding but again it's a it's got the hand claps yeah. so it's got the kind of goofy hand claps they have those on public enemy number one as well and it's like so glam and so bass city rollers right it's just a weird combo of things um let's play the chorus which is even more glam I love the contrast between the kind of kind of the 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 um the two the what is it two four beat or whatever that is that's almost like hands clapping and then you have the whoa but then you have the riff which is full metal where it's like yeah. rrr, rrr, rrr. so it's just like two things just don't go together at all um but it, it somehow it really works all right finally we're gonna play uh uh the uh, guitar solo which features some great squealing from our hero Vince uh, on vocals let's do it. Yeah, I love that. Uh, but again, it's 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 so goofy sounding because the guitar almost seems like it's going up in volume as it's as it's yeah, playing and going down. Was. Like the mix is just so crazy, right? And then you, you got Vince like, ah! 
feel like a little squealing. Again, showing off um, that four-note range of his. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I absolutely love that. And we'll, you know, of course, we got to mention the last song, you know. It's a very cliche. The one thing we should say is, even though some of the lyrics are strange, there's tons of cliches on this album. I mean, you know, piece of your action was already just straight ripoff from Sweet. You know, it's very uh, full of cliche rock and roll tropes, and none more so than the finale, which is a perfect finale for this album, which is on with the show. Uh, it begins with the lyric, Frankie died last night and or asleep last night. Some say it was suicide. Frankie, of course, being... Uh, Frank Farana, you know, uh, Nikki Six's original name. He actually did have his name changed to Nikki Six early on, and he stole it from someone else, another guy in the scene. He took his name. Um, and uh, this song is complete cliche. It's one of these rock and roll stories, you know, like Bon Jovi kind of does, or, you know, a David Bowie did rock and roll suicide. It's definitely influenced by that. Uh, I still love it. Um, it was probably one of the later songs that I finally got into, but I just love how it fits in with the themes of the album. And it's all about them becoming stars, which is what yeah. this album is about. Now, in summary, I want to say that what this album reminds me of is another album I love, which is Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen. This is by far my favorite Bruce album. I do like a lot of his other stuff. But what I found is that album is the one album where he threw it all on the line. He basically created this album that never sounded like anything he did again. You know, it's got, it's ridiculous. It's over the top. You know, you listen to a song like Jungle Land, which just breaks into the saxophone solo out of nowhere. And it's like nine minutes long. And it's got these really overly poetic lyrics that are almost laughable. And then you have Born to Run and, and Thunder Road that are just so epic and big. And they have, you know, wall of sound production with this mix of Phil Spector and rock. And you've got like glockenspiel on Thunder Road. You know, it's just, da, 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 da. it's so, he is throwing it all on the line. It's like a rocky moment. He's trying to be big and it worked, right? He became huge. And he, and it, it's an album that really sounds goofy to me, even though Meatloaf would actually listen to that album and make it even more extreme yeah. and be, make it even and more successful, way more successful than Bruce. Um, so it's like, it's, it's one of examples of this album that kind of throws together a mixture of things that shouldn't work. Um, of course, Born to Run is a, a pretty much looked at as a bona fide classic, but it's, I think it's similar to this album in a way because he's throwing together a bunch of stuff that shouldn't work girl groups and R and B and, you know, uh, you know, Bob Dylan and hard rock and, and all this stuff, it shouldn't work. And it does. And it's, it's a moment too, where you can hear the ambition in the music. You can hear how hard he's trying and how bad he wants it. And that's what this album has in spades. Yeah. Like they are the reason the songs are so over the top and they're so elaborate and so thrown together is they were really trying to create something that was bigger than life. And they were trying to emulate their heroes like Aerosmith and the Suite that created these elaborate songs, or Queen especially created these really elaborate songs uh, that had all these parts, but they didn't have the technical competence to imitate that exactly, right? And they also, when they produced it, they didn't have the money to put in the, in the production. And Roy Thomas Baker was handled just to do what he could with the mix. They decided, you know, they wanted to get some of this band out. They didn't want it. Electra didn't want to invest a lot of money into them because remember Tom Zutat was, you know, given this chance and they're like, well, we want to focus on our different art, our new wave artists and our other artists. Right. So that was why Motley Crue was like, you know, they had put all this on the line and they had basically created the showcase for themselves to show what they were all about. And then the image on the album and everything is part of it. It's all over the top. So as to the, as to my final evaluation of the album, after, you know, our, 
nearly three hours of discussing it. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I'm long on the album. I'm a fan. I'm a booster of the album. And I think that uh, I think Jeff's assessment is essentially correct, that if you isolated Motley Crue to this era, it's going to be. I think it's going to be looked upon favorably. I think that people are going to look on this album and see what they missed and they're going to see the ambition. And I think they're going to tie it with the sound, a shout at the devil stuff. I almost think what if Motley Crue had been a band that just broke up after shout at the devil? What if Vince's accident had resulted in them ending? They would be looked upon as a great band. I think, I think they would be looked upon as what could have been, you know, like, Hey, you remember all that hair metal and how bad it was. And, you know, maybe Guns N' Roses was good, but everything was terrible. But what about that band Motley Crue? You know, they they would have been great. You know, I think the same thing of Rat. If they would have made Out of the Cellar, the second one's OK. But if they would Out of the Cellar is great. Right. If they yeah. would have made Out of the Cellar and quit. Everyone would be going. They were amazing. Like what if, you know, we wouldn't have Poison and all this if those bands stuck around and still made the heavy rock they were making. Right. But it's not true. They transitioned to be full, terrible hair metal. And they kept changing with the times as they were trendy. And I think even Shout at the Devil, why it's less to me and why I will steadfastly argue that is because that's them jumping on the bandwagon with the heavier metal of Iron Maiden and stuff to cash in. And I think this album is them doing what they thought they were. I mean, granted, they weren't they weren't uh, sincere in a way. They were cynical. They were trying to make it. And they thought this was what they would do to do that. But there's something about it that, that you hear the ambition in it. You hear the over-the-top goofiness, uh, and it works for me. It just works. And I still find new stuff to like in this album, little quirks and little vocal flourishes and maybe little cowbell that I didn't hear before, although that's almost impossible because one thing RTB did is he cranked that to the max. I mean, you can hear the... Yeah, the cowbell on this, that's one thing why this is superior to the Leather Records version. The cowbell is more subdued as subdued as something like cowbell can be, it's much louder on this mix. Um, you know, he puts it front and center, which is just ridiculous. It's almost comical, but yeah, I'll leave it at that. I love the album and it's conflicting to me because I don't like them as people. And I, you know, I would say their legacy is going to be this album of parts of shout at the devil and the dirt and the rest doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. The rest is a big short. So yeah. that's it for me. Yeah. I, I come down similar, obviously, as I mentioned. So, All right, that's an epic two-hour, 45-minute version of episode 17, CFX, Rear Traction, or also known as Too Fast for Love. (laughs) Uh, Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Hopefully, you enjoyed this look back at the early Motley Crue, and we'll take this into consideration when you uh, see them um, over OD or whatever the latest, uh, how they're going to wind up their uh, lives and careers in some infamy and of pathetic nature, no doubt. So... That's all we have today. This is Jeff and that slip. We'll say goodbye here. Goodbye. 